Thank you very much for inviting me. And um, it's nice to be talking about Blake in London because um, Blake was very much a Londoner and um, often mentions London or parts of London in his poems. Um, sometimes he has good things to say about them, sometimes not so good. Um, and apart from three years which he spent in Sussex, um, he spent the whole of his 70-year life in London. So he's very much a poet, artist, and prophet of London, um, as well as of England, um, and, and of course now the world as well. So um, wh what I'm going to do in this session particularly is to, is to offer you a kind of outline of his life um, and some of his ideas, and then we'll, we'll go on to more specific things in the second session. Um, I have to say that the, um, the, the picture you've got here is a little bit on the yellow side. Um, the projector is making the pictures look more yellow than they really are, so um, that should be kind of primrose rather than sunflower, but um, there, there we are. It's, it's as good as we can get, and I think that picture conveys the sense of um, of both joy and energy, um, which were two of the human qualities that Blake valued most. So it seemed like a good, uh, a good image to, to start with. Um, so I'm hoping this, this clicker thing is going to, going to work correctly. Let's have a look. Yes, okay, so there's our title. And also Blake's date. So as you can see, he was born in the middle of the 18th century, 1757, and lived through about the first quarter of the 19th century. So he's just a little bit earlier than people like, uh, like Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, as a use, well, let's have a look at Blake himself. Now, this is the portrait by Thomas Phillips. Um, and uh, in a way, a conventional portrait, but you can see some of the energy and the de determination in Blake's face. The eyes looking upwards as if he's, um, he's looking at some, some sort of vision, something important that's developing in his field of vision. And um, the artist's hand with the pencil or the engraving tool that he's holding. Um, and the intensity of the eye. Now, um, brace yourselves, because the next picture is going to be Blake's self-portrait, and it's really quite something. It's quite, I found it quite hard to sit and stare at this on a computer screen. That's Blake himself, drawn by himself. Um, the intensity, the determination, the energy, and that kind of muscular face, very powerful. Um, People weren't sure until recently that it was a self-portrait, but an incredibly ingenious scholar realized that there was a life mask of Blake. In other words, there's a plaster cast made of Blake's face. Um, and they checked the detail, and they found that indeed certain little features are there, reversed left to right, which means that this was done in a mirror. So Blake is probably staring into a mirror there, but he's staring at us as well. Very challengingly, I think. It's a wonderful picture, but quite scary. Um, Blake also um, drew a number of um, what we might call visionary self-portraits um, late in life. Um, and this, I think, is how he saw himself inside, how he saw himself spiritually. Um, that's, if you like, that's the inner Blake. That's Blake's picture of his own imagination. Um, 
there are, there are just a few seats over here, and I'm just thinking if one or two people on the edge over here are finding it difficult to get a good view of the screen, you could move across. Are you okay there? Are you quite happy? Because there's, there's a few seats here. I'm just thinking that if you're having to stretch, crane your neck, you know, you might. Um, again, equally piercing vision, but this is, this is almost um, Blake's portrait of his own imagination. It's, it's kind of Blake as the inner spirit looking out at us. And maybe, maybe the idea is that we've each, we've each got an inner person there who looks a bit like us, but is also kind of transformed and purified a little bit more. So it's a little bit more like looking at the soul. You know, there's, there's, there's the physical Blake, and there's the inner imaginative Blake. Um, very, very interesting. Um, to give you a sense of, of, of Blake's dates, again, of his place in history, um, let's just put him alongside Jane Austen. What you see from that is that um, Jane Austen's life fits neatly inside Blake's. Um, they're contemporary, but Blake lived longer. He was born earlier and he died later. Um, it also, I think, points to something else, which is that Blake's vision is, is a vision of the world from the position of a fairly plebeian, um, almost working class person, a skilled craftsman who's also a poet. Um, Jane Austen's worldview is that of the gentry, um, of someone on the fringes of the upper class. So um, part of the difference in the way they looked at the world, the much more turbulent world that Blake sees, the much more sort of both both disturbed and dramatic and apocalyptic view of the world comes from the, the, simply the harder life that he would have had, the greater challenges he would have had to face. Um, Jane Austen's world is a somewhat more serene one. There are challenges, but they're, they're, they, are, they are inner ones and they're subtler ones. Um, and the other important factor just in Blake's um, situation was that his life embraced these two very important revolutions. The French Revolution broke out when he was um, just over 30 years old and led to a lifetime of continuous war. There was European war going on practically through the whole of Blake's adulthood. Um, at the same time, the Industrial Revolution was taking place with um, people who'd formerly worked in, ag in agriculture being forced into factories, um, the mechanization of craft processes and so on. So huge historical changes. And if Blake um, often reads and seems to be a bit of a revolutionary and someone who's looking at very disturbing depths of human nature, it's hardly surprising because he lived through one of the most turbulent periods in um, European history. Um, okay, so um, what about Blake himself? Well, Blake, Blake was a natural visionary from childhood. Um, he was born in London. His parents were fairly poor. His father ran um, a shop where he sold gloves and stockings. He was a, he was a hosier, which, which is a fairly humble kind of shopkeeper. Um, and um, his parents were, were Christians of some um, fairly mystical kind. We don't know exactly what 
group they belonged to, but they were, they were not members of the Church of England. They belonged to a mystical Christian sect, um, which um, would have meant that Blake and his family would have known the Bible absolutely inside out. I mean, Blake, Blake could quote chunks of the Bible at the drop of a hat. They studied the Bible intensely, and they developed their own interpretations of what they read there. So they were not taking their religious views from the, the establishment. Um, they were very much part of one of the many small mystical sects of Christians. Um, maybe, maybe like Pleasant Company, but probably um, slightly crazier, you know. Um, there, were, there was a ferment of, um, of, of mystical Christian sects in London um, in the uh, mid-18th century, um, people following Joanna Southcott, people following all kinds of charismatic Christian teachers. So we don't know exactly what his upbringing was, but we know that he was soaked in the Bible and that he was encouraged to develop his own interpretations of what he read there. Um, but Blake also had a natural faculty for um, seeing things. Um, a powerful childhood imagination which persisted as far as we can see unchanged into adulthood. Um, I've given you this, this is a, a drawing of course done um, in his adult life. It's a picture of J Jacob's ladder um, imagined here rather as a spiral staircase than simply as a ladder. The angels going up and down those stairs to heaven. I introduced that because um, between the ages of 8 and 10 at some point Blake came home one day from a walk um, as a child and told his parents that he'd seen a tree full of angels on Peckham Rye. Um, his father wanted to beat him for telling lies, but his mother stuck up for him and defended him. Um, and it's clear that he wasn't lying. He, it, it wasn't just a concept to him. It was, it was an experience that he had had. And he continued to have these visionary experiences throughout his life. He was a natural visionary. And something which perhaps more people have in childhood, but which most of us lose as we get older, Blake didn't lose it. He would, he would continue to see those angels and those spiritual beings throughout his life. So um, that's just one of the many anecdotes about his childhood. He also, on another occasion, came in um, and said that he had seen angels among the haymakers at work in the fields. Um, and this, of course, reminds us also that London was both smaller and greener in the mid-18th century. Um, you could easily walk out into the fields. Um, and Blake frequently did this, so he sees angels spontaneously. He was, um, he was sent to school, but it didn't last long because he um, couldn't stand the fact that the school teacher beat the children. He refused to go, and so from the age of 10, he was sent to a drawing school um, where he simply learned art. Um, on another occasion, um, he's said to have run screaming to his mother because he saw, as he said, God putting his head to the window. So as if God's, God must have been looking in through the window at him. And he was, he was taken aback. He was, he was frightened. Um, so it's clear that the visions he saw as a child were, were intense, um, very much alive, and not, uh, n n not simply 
he will, not entirely under, under his personal control. Here's, uh, again, from later life, here's an image of God, perhaps as Blake might have seen him as a child, looking into the, into the house. Um, and you can see that uh, throughout his adult work, Blake preserves this ability to visualize spiritual forms um, most intensely. Um, I think we, you know, anyone who's seen Blake's art will have carried away some of these vivid images in their imagination. Um, and this is how Blake saw things. Um, he had some ambitions as a poet. Um, a small pamphlet of his early poems was published in 1782. But um, having a skill for drawing um, and coming from the sort of level of society where you needed to have a marketable skill, he trained as an engraver. Um, now, in the 18th century, an engraver wasn't regarded as an artist in the full sense. An engraver was a skilled craftsman, one grade up from a printer, who um, copied other people's drawings so that they could be turned into book illustrations and prints. So it was regarded as a mechanical skill. Um, so Blake, skilled engraver, and um, one of the many skills which he would have learned as an engraver onto copper and steel plates was the ability to write backwards, to do mirror writing. Um, and this, this stood him in very good stead, because one of the things that he wanted to do um, was to make his own books. Um, and we'll, we'll have, a, have a glimpse of those in a moment. Unfortunately, um, William Blake had set up, his, um, set up in business, not only as an engraver, but with a shop selling prints. Um, the, the venture didn't work because he was in business with his brother Robert. His brother Robert died. The business failed. Um, and when his elder brother Robert died, um, Blake said that he saw Robert's spirit leaving his body, clapping its hands for joy. The spirit was rejoicing at, at being released. And he, 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 he always thought of Robert, and he introduced him into some of his later illuminated books. So here, finally, here is Robert um, being struck by a falling star. This is from the, a, a late poem called Milton. Um, yeah, so Blake saw Robert's body, spirit leaving the body, clapping its hands for joy um, with that sense of release in, into eternity from the physical body. But um, part of the consequence of this was that the business went to pieces without Robert's help. And um, Blake simply had to settle down working as an engraver for other people. Now, he wanted to make his own books. Um, Blake was, was very interested in medieval art. Um, as a boy, he had drawn statues and carvings in Westminster Abbey and elsewhere as part of his schooling. Um, he was interested in medieval manuscripts. He wanted to make beautiful books like those. And um, he used his skill as an engraver to create um, what he called illuminated books. Um, here's the title page of Songs of Innocence. Again, it shouldn't be as 
yellow as that. It's kind of, it's more kind of peach colored in the original of this copy. Um, Blake's illuminated books were engraved on copper plates, hand-printed on his own press, colored in watercolor. Um, one consequence of this is that every copy of these little books is different because he would change the coloring each time a little bit. He, he wasn't interested in doing things in a stereotyped way. Um, it always had to be creative, so depending on, on mood and inclination, he would, he would change the, the look of the books. Um, but they are small masterpieces of, um, of, 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 of beauty and originality. I mean, we've, we've got this like a huge poster, but actually the, the size of the book is, um, is kind of less than somewhat less than A5, so it's, it's about sort of that, so it would fit easily onto there. Um, and we'll, we'll come back and have a look at the Song of Innocence and experience a little bit later, but it seems initially that Blake may have intended these books partly to be children's books, um, though gradually his, um, you know, his, his, his ambitions grew more profound, and um, eventually Songs of Innocence was joined by um, what's now the other half of the collection, so it's Songs of Innocence and of Experience. So here's the, here's the title page to the complete um, collection. And you can see that the two images um, are very much in contrast. Here is the, um, probably the nurse rather than the mother, um, or perhaps a mother reading to two small children under a tree which has golden apples on it, and there are angels playing among the, um, the letters of the word songs above. Um, it's all very idyllic and happy. Um, you move on to this one, and it's all fire and brimstone, and um, the two figures are clearly the figures of Adam and Eve being cast out of paradise. The suggestion, I think, um, is, among other things, that um, the childhood can be um, an innocent world of um, an, a world of Eden or the world of paradise. And you can see that the, the tree trunk there, I hope you can see, has got a vine growing up it, which is just snake-like enough to suggest that things may not always be like this. Um, and then here we have the um, the traumatic world, um, which can be experienced at times by adults, where um, the environment has mostly turned to flames. We've still got some sort of um, slightly plant-like forms at the top, and there's a bird flying up towards the word songs, so it all, all isn't lost, but, um, but a profound contrast nonetheless. Um, the, the fact that his, his first um, significant illuminated book was um, Songs of Innocence and of Experience brings up the fact that Blake was very interested in this idea of polarities or contrasts. Um, there's a, a passage which we'll come back to later on, but I'll give it to you at this point. A key quotation from Blake here, without contraries is no progression. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate are necessary to human existence. Um, 
One of the things which Blake seems to have in mind in passages like this um, is the idea that it's no, it's no good suppressing parts of yourself. Um, you have to recognize the whole of yourself. You have to recognize the love in yourself, but you also have to recognize the hate. If you don't recognize that, it will go underground and become worse. Um, we, have to, we have to integrate ourselves, and to do that, we have to realize that it is natural for human beings to have conflict within them. Um, a lot of 18th century poetry and indeed theology could be very bland and could argue that, you know, that if, if we just make an effort, we can be nice and good all the time and so on. Blake recognized that we live in a world of turbulence and conflict. But um, above all, the principle that Blake valued was energy. Um, creative activity in our lives, um, the rejoicing in life itself, um, pleasure in positive development, um, and, and in, in connection with the idea of contraries, perhaps the notion that, um, that the energy that arises from the various conflicting tendencies in us is a good thing and is more important than simply trying to pretend that we can be perfect all the time. Once we recognize that we can't, we can, we can devote ourselves to trying to make something creative and positive out of all the conflicts, contraries, and um, general mess that we tend to be. We can move all of that in a positive direction, but we have to accept all the parts of ourselves to do that. Um, another key quotation before we move on to pictures again. Um, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. Um, Blake was very insistent about the idea that we actually live in a spiritual world. Um, we, we may think that we inhabit a world that is of irreducible stuff, matter, that it's lifeless, etc. Um, in Blake's view, we see things this way because, if we do, because that's the way our minds are. But actually, we are in a world that is completely full of life. We are in a world that is, that is divine, a world that is the creation of God, a world that for us is an experience of the imagination. We, we are actually imagining the world at this very moment. Each one of us, even at this moment, is seeing this world differently, in different ways, depending on who we are, what we have within us. Um, and for Blake, if, if we could only see fleshly, lose our preconceptions in a certain way, um, we would once more see the world as, as a living and infinite vision. So um, Blake wants really to share that um, spontaneous childhood vision which he preserved into adult life with all of us, with, with his readers, with those that he can reach through his art. Um, 
we have the wind howling outside now, perhaps for Blake there would have been spirits flying through the air, you know. Um, perhaps we can glimpse those for a moment with our own imaginations. It's, it's possible. Perhaps we can sense a living breath of the divine going through the world. Um, how else can the world be alive? It has to be there somehow. And for Blake, we should in some way be able to perceive it, as he seems to have done. Um, a quick glimpse of history again. Um, two figures um, from whom Blake learned. Um, one, Emanuel Swedenborg, the Swedish visionary who had, in fact, ended, finished his life in England. So he was well known in England and in London. Um, Swedenborg, Swedenborg's contribution to Blake's thinking was that um, Swedenborg studied the Bible and wrote about the Bible, but he did not take the Bible literally. He believed that the Bible was, if you like, a poetic allegory where each thing had not only a literal meaning, but more importantly, it symbolized something. Um, so, for example, the story of the Tower of Babel um, wasn't just a historical story about some people putting up a building. Um, it was a visionary tale of human pride attempting to um, compete with the divine or to access it in the long way. Um, so, what Blake got from Swedenborg was the teaching that you should take the Bible and interpret it poetically. You should see meaning in it for yourself and not just treat it as stories of things that happened a long time ago. So that, that tendency to a visionary interpretation of spiritual texts, and the Bible in particular, he learned to some extent from Swedenborg. Um, Jakob Burma, of course, the German mystic um, with a great interest in spiritual alchemy. It may be from Burma that Blake learned um, about the importance of using all the conflicting forces within the human being in the move towards creativity and integration. So um, Blake was leading these people, picking up ideas from them, um, and incorporating those into his own way of seeing things, but always remaining very individual. Blake is, is, is certainly a greater figure than Swedenborg, perhaps greater than Burma, and certainly much more individual than any of them. Blake's belief in individual imagination and individual freedom um, led him to political radicalism. Um, he, never, he never had a specific political program, but he's very much in favor of liberty, individual freedom, um, very much opposed to cruelty. It was a great story about him um, seeing from his back window a boy, um, and probably an apprentice whose master had <coughs> punished him by chaining him to a log in the backyard. Um, Blake went round there, set the boy free, um, and threatened to beat the master who'd done this thing. He was, he was, he was a passionate advocate of freedom, 
um, and a passionate op op opponent of cruelty both to, to people and to animals. Um, he was a supporter of the French Revolution, certainly in its earlier days, although he kind of went off politics a bit later on in life, as, as so many of us do. Um, and he often, in religion, he often refers in, in a brief little phrase, which is why I've got this picture here, to Jesus the imagination. For Blake, Jesus is not only the historical figure, not only theologically the son of God, he's also the, the principle of the imagination within us. Um, I think the reasons for this, you, you, can, you can present this in different ways. What, one way is that for Blake, without the imagination, we would see the world as dead anyway, if we saw it at all. So it is the imagination within our perceptions that gives life to the world. Um, another way of looking at it, I think, is Blake perceives that without imagination, we have no compassion. Um, we have, it's our imagination of how others feel that enables us to feel with them. If we didn't have that, we would simply see people externally as objects. We would have no empathy. So Jesus is the living principle of imaginative connection with others within ourselves. Um, thirdly, the imagination for Blake, of course, is where art comes from. It's, it's the place from which our own urge to create beauty and to enhance the world comes from. Um, so there is a sense in which we, we resurrect our world and our view of the world from within by the imagination so that Jesus lives within us through creativity, among other things. Jesus within us is compassion, is creativity, and that is the imagination. So for Blake, the imagination in each person is also Jesus within each person. I think this is the best, the best way that it can be explained. Um, none of this is entirely straightforward. Blake's art is always quite, um, quite puzzling. Um, it's always quite challenging. And um, late in life, Blake wrote a wonderful letter to um, a clergyman, the Reverend Dr. Trussler, who, who complained that he couldn't understand Blake's writings and pictures. Um, and one part of this is, is this little quote here. He says, you say that I want somebody to elucidate my ideas, but you ought to know that what is grand is necessarily obscure to weak men. That which can be made explicit to the idiot is not worth my care. <laughs> he doesn't actually say that Dr. Tussler is, is an idiot, but um, <laughs> the wisest of the ancients considered what is not too explicit as the fittest for instruction because it rouses the faculties to act. Um, so I think what he's, what he's saying here is that um, what is important is, is to get to grips with things, and in particular with, with, of course, his own work. Even, even if you, It doesn't matter if you don't fully understand it, or it doesn't matter if you don't agree with somebody else on what it means. The point is to engage with it. 
it rouses the faculties to act. In other words, Blake wants us to be as creative in interpreting his work as he was in creating it in the first place. Um, I find this passage very comforting because um, not only does it show that sometimes other people didn't understand what Blake was doing either, which, you know, I don't mind if he thinks I'm an idiot, fair enough, but also um, he knows that what he's doing is challenging, and the point is for us to apply our own imaginations to it and make of it what we can, and that's absolutely fine. Um, Blake was, was keen on argument and, and debate and that kind of thing, and I think he'd be perfectly happy for us all to come up with our own interpretations of what he's done. The point is to get in there and engage with it. Um, one more um, quotation. To me, this world is all one continued vision of fancy or imagination. So. The world as we see it is, it's a, it's a vision. We are in a vision right now. Um, it's, not, it's not inert, it's not dead, it's not meaningless. It is something which we are experiencing, which has meaning for us, and which we perceive because of the creativity which is within us. So um, there's a sense of, of spirituality throughout everything that we experience, if this is true. And I think that's, that's the point that he's making. Um, and here's another one. Everybody does not see alike. To the eyes of a miser, a guinea is more beautiful than the sun. That's a nice, nice straightforward quote. <laughs> but um, it's, it's an extreme way of making, making a, a fundamental point that we, we all experience the world differently depending what our priorities are. And, you know, we, we, we know this is absolutely true. And here, just about my favorite, this, this should be, you know, on, on the banner for every, every part of the green movement. The tree which moves some to tears of joy is in the eyes of others only a green thing that stands in the way. Every planning department should have this on the wall. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Does he say Woody's right or wrong? <laughs> he doesn't really know. Um, you can see what he thinks is, is right in this case. It's kind of, it's, it is the more living and the more interesting view which he prefers. But he would also be in favor of having that argument, you know, not silencing one, one view or the other. Um, Blake had patrons who, who bought his, his books and his pictures to some extent. He was always poor. Um, he, he made his living... Um, as I've said, as an engraver. And this, uh, scholars have unearthed a vast amount of material that Blake engraved one way or another. He engraved advertisements. He engraved flyers, um, which were dished out to advertise things like carpet shops. I mean, all just very ordinary things. He engraved book illustrations. He also designed 
illustrations for books that you think like encyclopedias, um, as well as portraits and collections of poems. He occasionally painted murals for people in their houses. He did all kinds of work. But um, all the time he was producing his own illuminated books. And, and he had a small number of disciples. Um, in his later years, a small group of artists who called themselves the Ancients became his students and pupils, and he, Blake was their kind of guru. Um, and um, probably the best known of these was Samuel Palmer. Um, and um, here is, gosh, I'm sorry, the, the reproduction is so poor, really. It shouldn't nearly be as yellow as that, and it should be sharper, but anyway. Um, Samuel Palmer um, learned a visionary way of looking at landscape from Blake, um, a sense that there, there is a mysterious energy in the environment. Um, you see that shepherd or farm worker um, walking through the moonlit field um, there's, there's a sense of, of profound meaning there. He's perhaps, the, the, it's like the pilgrimage of life going through the half-reaped field, um, the mystery of that, that moon and the single star or planet shining. Um, Palmer um, learned a great deal from Blake towards the end of Blake's life. Um, Edward Calvert, the engraver, um, was, was another of Blake's pupils. Um, this is the um, Calvert's engraving, the cider harvest. Um, you've got the, the apples. It's a sort of picture of paradise, really, the man, the man and the woman together, um, running or dancing, the cider being made, the apples profuse on the trees. Um, it's a vision of a kind of paradise, an agricultural paradise, um, the sort of work which, of course, was hugely inspiring to later um, utopian socialists like William Morris. Um, and here's, here's one of Blake's own images again. Um, this is um, one of his many illustrations for Dante's Divine Comedy. And you have um, Dante in the red and Beatrice appearing to him in the blue and Dante fleeing from the three wild beasts which he meets at the beginning of the Divine Comedy. It's interesting that Beatrice appears here in Blake's picture. She, she's not there in Dante. He, he meets Virgil, but he doesn't meet Beatrice yet. But um, in this first illustration, um, Blake brings Beatrice there as well, representing his final sort of entrance into paradise. And you can see again the feeling of um, tension and creativity between contrasts there. On the right-hand side, you've got the, the glaring wild beasts. Um, on the left-hand side, you've got the two um, beautiful human figures, as in a ballet with the sun. But then also, you've got a very strong sense of the balance and polarity between the male and female in the figure of Dante and Beatrice. So 
um, there's, there's a lot of sort of sense of balanced energies within the picture. It's, it's, very, uh, it's very mobile, but also very satisfying in that sense. Um, you might think from looking at those animals and people that Blake wasn't actually very good at things like anatomy. But the interesting thing is that there are sketchbooks and drawings which show that Blake could draw completely realistic people and animals when he wanted to. Um, there are a couple of his sketchbooks in existence. And clearly, the, 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 the distortions and changes are there for purposes of expression. Um, we're in a visionary world here. And the, the animals have almost human faces, particularly that lion in the middle. Um, and that seems to be quite deliberate. Um, and of course, famously, um, Blake had his images of God um, from many different perspectives. This is the, um, the famous painting of the Elohim creating Adam. Um, it's, it's one vision of Adam's creation in Genesis. Um, tremendously complex, the, um, the face of this aspect of God, the, the Elohim as it is in the Hebrew, um, the creative God who makes Adam, he, he looks disturbed, he looks distressed. Um, perhaps the point is that at this point the human spirit is entering into the physical world and this is a sort of this is a, a, a very tense and traumatic moment and so the creator God looks quite anxious. Um, Adam is almost like somebody who's losing consciousness rather than someone who's regaining it perhaps because he's entering into the material world with all the the burdens and problems that this is going to involve. The body is already wreathed in the coils of a serpent because as, as the spirit enters into the flesh, it will have to endure so much. Um, there's a huge storm going on, storm clouds overhead hiding the great big red sun disk in the background, um, dark waves flowing. Um, it's, it's one vision of creation, but quite a dark one. But of course, there are, there are many different views of creation in Blake, some of them very light and very positive. But at this moment, it's thing, things are looking ominous. But it's hugely powerful. Once you've seen that, I think you, you don't forget that image in a hurry. And you know, Blake says, well, it rouses the faculties to act. You ask yourself, why does it look like this? What's going on? And you can keep on reinterpreting it. But it challenges you. Um, well, and so in 1827, Blake dies. And um, thanks to the Blake Society, we've now got this wonderful, um, rather beautiful stone on his grave in Bunhill Fields, um, put there just, just over a year ago, if I remember rightly. And um, again, it's, it's, got a, it's got a very appropriate quotation on it. I don't know whether you can read this from there, but it says, um, William Blake, poet, artist, prophet. And the quotation is, I give you the end of a golden string, only wind it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate, built in Jerusalem's wall. So again, you see, it's this idea of rousing the faculties to act. The end of a golden string, you've got to pick it up 
and you've got to you've got to follow it. You've got to wind it up in your own way. Now, what's he talking about? I think he means that as you wrestle with his art and his poetry, you will you will change yourself. You will you will find something. Um, but he can't just he can't take you there. Um, he can he can give you the clues, and you have to work on those yourself. You have to use your own imagination and your own thought to take yourself there. So again, even on even on that gravestone, it's a very well chosen quotation. I think it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a little enigma. Yes. Sorry, can I ask why Jerusalem was wall? Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem's the holy city. I think here it stands for heaven viewed in human terms, if you like. Um, Jerusalem, where, where there, will be a, there will be a gate or a door that you can go through, and, and you're in Jerusalem. Um, particularly for the um, visionary Christians of that period, the heavenly Jerusalem was the vision of, of heaven and salvation. Um, he certainly regarded himself as Christian, but not in the sense of belonging to any established Christian church. He was, if you like, an independent Christian. Um, his, his repeated assertion that Jesus is the human imagination means that he is a Christian, but a Christian of his own kind. And he would say, and you are a Christian of your kind, and so are you, and we can always debate, you know, but each of us has to find. Um, Christ for, for Blake is, is the archetypal essence of the human being, I think. He's the fully human. Um, and, you know, he says in one of his poems, all must love the human form in heathen, Turk, or Jew, where mercy, love, and pity dwell, their God is dwelling too. So, from that point of view, Jesus is in all of us, but we have to find him, we have to liberate him, develop him, well, however you want to put it. Um, so, he's, yes, he's, yes, he's a Christian, but not a Christian that you can pin down in terms of an established denomination. But here, he tends to use Christian imagery at all times, really. Um, so, yes? Absolutely, yes, 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 it is. Yes, Jer Jerusalem is is for Blake um, the the human goal of creativity, happiness, um, integration compassion, all, all those things. It's the ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, and of course, it's an example of using, um, using biblical terminology to symbolize something much wider. Um, you know, he doesn't mean we have to go to Palestine to find Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is within us, all around us, insofar as we can find it. And I've just got one more picture in this part just to 
just to end, really, um, and, uh, an, an instance of the way that Blake integrates different things, because in, in the middle, in the background, you've got Stonehenge, slightly reconstructed. Um, in the center, you've got the, the figure of um, the character who in Blake's long poems is called Loss, who is the, the blacksmith. Um, Loss is really the figure of the creative artist. Um, he's got his hammer and he's got his, well, they can be tongs or they can be compasses for measuring. So they are the tools of the craftsman, the implements of the artist. Um, then on, on the right, you have the figure, perhaps a woman holding um, a, a, a veil, which also seems to be the, 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 the night sky with the moon. And then on the other, the other side, you have um, a figure carrying the sun. So you've got the sun and the moon um, polarized across the picture. Um, a, a, very, a very powerful depiction of, of the human faculties, I think, with the, the human creativity with the tools, with day and night, sun and moon, um, and the ancient emblem of, of particularly British um, antiquity in the center. Um, Blake sort of takes the view that, that each, each nation will have its own way of looking at things and its own, its own vision. And he likes sometimes to produce specific British images um, as, as, as a reference to the, the, the land in which he is working. So there's Stonehenge unexpectedly making an appearance. And you can see Stonehenge has been elaborated because it's got, it's got sort of wings coming off at each side, left and right, with more of those dolmens stretching out on both sides. And the wonderful night sky in the background with the, the stars and so on. Um, it's almost 12 o'clock, so that's, if you like, that's a kind of introduction. Um, I don't know whether people would like to raise any questions now. Do you want to ask anything? That's, you're probably feeling slightly sort of um, <laughs> stunned by all the stuff I've thrown at you. Yes? To what extent does Blake influence us on Gnosticism? Because he did hint at a counter God, didn't he? Like there's some uh, sort of dark voices and tentacles. What's your take? Yeah. Um, there's, there's no, there's no direct evidence that Blake was influenced specifically by Gnosticism. But um, given his interest in contraries and polarities, he tends to see good and bad aspects in everything. Um, and usually the, the, the goal is somehow to, to integrate these or to rise above them through balancing. And that does have something in common with Gnosticism. I mean, even here, you've got a sense of dark, dark and light, sun and moon. Um, I, I would suspect that if that's, um, if that's got any, any kind of intellectual background, it probably comes from him reading about alchemy um, more than anything. Um, that, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure that um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know enough about Burma to be sure whether Burma, whether he actually um, takes the view that there's a, there's a sort of an, an alternative or another half to the creation. But I think what Blake would say was that within us, um, we, we have light and dark forces. And, you know, and that we ourselves can be either, either Jesus or Satan, depending how we behave and how we look at things, you know. And we have to admit that. And somehow we have to integrate all those things. And I think the, the, the artist or the worker with his tools there is the point of integration between the sun and the moon, the light and the dark, the male and the female. You know, all, all of those contouries are going to provide the power which, which he will use to, to create something positive. So that there are things in common with Gnosticism, yes. But, but, but Burma, Jakob Burma, the, the German mystic, is probably the this particular source of that. Um, if there is a source, here he is on the, on the right. Yeah, and we know that Blake read his books. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you just... Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just thinking, fast forward to Jung. Because Jung uh, did very much the Yeah, work. yeah. Um, well, again, the link, the, the, the link is, is alchemy and yeah. Burma yeah. in particular, because, yeah. um, I mean, Blake wasn't an alchemist messing about with chemicals, but, but he read books by people like Burma who, who were interested in the integration of opposites. And, and basically, the alchemy takes place within the human being, including the human body. So yes, there's elements of that, yeah. Without contraries, there's no progression. This is from the marriage of heaven and hell, which we're actually going to look at a bit later. So we will come back to it. It is. It is. It is. Um, and yes, I mean, I think he's well. He's. You can't. You mustn't fool yourself that you're a nice person all the time. Because if you do, the, the nasty person will come out in hidden ways. You know, the, um, I haven't got it on a slide today, but you know that there's a great poem by Blake uh, called A Poison Tree. And it begins, I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not, my wrath did grow. And it gets worse and worse. And, and it, it turns into, the wrath grows into a tree and it bears an apple bright. And the foe comes into the garden and steals the apple. And in the morning, glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. So, <laughs> because you didn't talk about it openly, you ended up killing him. So, yeah, so it was there, but we didn't recognize it, you see. So, yeah, yes. I was thinking about the visions, and if, if that was to happen today, someone might say hallucinations or psychosis or something. Do people question, or what do we know about Blake and his mental health, or people question that, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is always a question. Um, some people, um, some people thought he was crazy because of the strangeness of his art, um, which was not typical of the period by any means. 
um, if he was doing it today, no one would think anything of it in that sense. Um, I think the... Uh, uh, nowadays, really, the criterion for whether you're crazy or not is, um, is can, you, can you cope? sort of thing. Can you function with normal... I mean, Blake lived a perfectly normal life on the whole, but he also had these visions and, and indeed invited and encouraged them and used them in his work. Um, I, don't, I don't think that really classifies him as, as having mental health problems because he, he was perfectly able to handle it and to function with it and even to use it creatively. He clearly had um, a very, very strong visual imagination. Um, he was a natural visionary, but there are people around who are, you know. Um, some people hear voices. Some people see um, spirits or angels or dead people. Um, they don't talk about it because other people will think they're weird, but, but actually it's not, it's not abnormal. It's, you know, like so many things, it's a spectrum, I suppose. Um, he was un I would say he was unusual, um, but he was perfectly able to function with all this. So I think, I think we can't really say, he, we can't say he, he was crazy. Or Did he have mental health problems? Well, I guess a matter of degree, isn't it? I mean, you know, we all, we all have emotional difficulties at times. Um, we all have better and worse periods. Um, there's, there's no simple label, really, is there? But I think he was okay. I mean, he was, he was, and he was better than okay in a sense. He was, he was mostly a very happy man. He didn't make a lot of money, um, but he, on the other hand, you know, he created art, which millions of people have been fascinated by for hundreds of years. So, no, he was just he was unusual as most great artists are. Um, just looking, uh, thinking of the image with uh, Stonehenge in the background. Oh, yeah. Um, and this notion that each country, each culture has its own kind of spiritual, spirituality or way of seeing spirituality, mm. which sort of echoes the kind of the Dalai Lama's approach of, you know, whatever your tradition is, oh, yeah. do your mm. tradition. Mm. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, I could see how that could be hijacked and become quite jingoistic. Yes, of course, of course, you know, yeah. so when people sing yes. Jerusalem, I don't think they get it. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's it's about very England-centric. Yeah, I mean, there are so many different interpretations. Um, I think for Blake, the the emphasis was would have been on building Jerusalem, not the fact that we happened to be building it in England. I mean, England was where he was living, and it was the language he was writing in. Um, the actual passage. It's an instance of how incredibly well Blake knew the Bible because Jerusalem is actually based on a passage in the book of Nehemiah. I don't know how many people have read the book of Nehemiah recently. It's not one that gets much of an airing these days in church, but there's a passage there which talks about rebuilding Jerusalem after some damage has been done to the city walls and how everyone is going to have to have, have to rebuild with a sword in one hand, you know. Um, and, and it's exactly like the key images, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand and so on, and they're building Jerusalem. And in that case, they're building it. I mean, the whole idea of building Jerusalem in England is kind of bonkers anyway, isn't it? Because Jerusalem's, you know, in, in the Middle East. So how, how are we building it here? 
it's all metaphors, isn't it? But yes, of course, the, this, the thing is that anything really can be um, can be reinterpreted for bad purposes, can't it? That's that's the difficulty. Yeah. I think people do get um, Jerusalem because it's got more and more famous. It wasn't actually. Well, no, it was helped by. I mean, it didn't even have a title. It's simply it's simply some verses at the beginning of one section of the long poem called Jerusalem, and it became popular partly because Hubert Pavy wrote this great tune, which everybody loves. And then I think the Women's Institute. Well, it's, uh, and the Labour Party. Yes. And it's got bigger and bigger now. Yes. Some more and more, and I think it does touch people. It's a deep thing to understand. Well, I mean, I, I it, and it's sung at weddings. It's sung. At, I sang it at Kathleen Wayne's funeral. Um, I mean, it, it it's a classic example of something that means different things to different people, isn't it? You know. It's still, I think at quite a deep level. Oh, it's 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 emotionally. It yeah. makes you want to to do something good. Yes. But, but then, of course, you've got your interesting question of how you define the good. Yes. You know, it's like one of these dialogues in Plato, isn't it? What, what, what is good? Um, yeah, so, yeah. But you, you, the thing is, with inter I mean, interpreting poems, there's no, there's no end to it because people will project into them whatever they're preoccupied with, really. And, and although the poet can steer to a certain extent, they can't control. I mean, he talks about the satanic mill, so some yeah. people have talked about it's got anti-capitalist sort of connotations, but some people disagree. What's your view on that? Well, um, Blake wouldn't have thought in terms of capitalism um, because, uh, I mean, that, that view of economics had not yet emerged. Um, the big question is, when he talks about dark satanic mills, is he talking about factories, or is he talking about the intellectual tradition of, of abstraction and materialism from people like, like John Locke and Newton. Um, and this is an ongoing debate, really. Um, he, he would have been aware of factories, but not to the extent that we might think, because most of the factories at this period would have been in the Midlands and the North, and it's likely that Blake never really saw um, a big industrial factory in the way that he might have done if he'd lived in Yorkshire, for example. Um, I never really know the answer to this, because clearly he certainly means, by the satanic mills, he certainly also means the processes of abstract reasoning and heartless materialism, which he saw being prevalent in science of the period. Um, I mean, we've been through a long period when, when a huge contingents of people have been trying to drum into us the idea that the world is essentially just a load of matter and that everything else like consciousness is a byproduct of matter. Um, I mean, and of course that is now changing again. But um, it was probably very much that worldview that Blake had in mind particularly. But he did also, he, he did also um, at times mention industrial machinery and its dehumanizing effects. So I, th I, th I think probably it's both. I think it's both. I don't think he's thinking about capitalism as such, because that, that whole kind of concept of economics wasn't really there as yet. He probably means both, both machinery and intellectual machinery that devalues the cosmos. But actually, on his own reasoning, mm. his contrast is actually good. Because 
Well, it has to be there. Yeah, it is going to be there. And yes, and so the the, the argument or the debate, yes. And I think I think one of the things that Blake is implying really is that you will never get rid of that. Um, it will always. Be, you can't get rid of it because that's just these are the some of the polarities between which the world works and exists. Yeah. So it has to be there. Yes. But you can argue against it. Can you just say a little bit more uh, why Robert, his brother, was so important to him. Um, or is perhaps a little I don't think we know enough about no. his life. I'm, Robert was his brother. Yeah, he, he had a very special relationship. He him. obviously loved him. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that they worked together was important. And Robert seems to have been also, to some extent, an artist. There are some drawings by Robert Blake. And in fact, one, one of the intriguing things is that there are some drawings surviving, and we don't know whether they're by William or by Robert. So their styles had a good deal in common. So obviously there's quite a kinship. Um, the, there, there are many problems. One, one is that we don't actually know um, whether he was a bit older than William or a bit younger, because there are no proper birth records um, from, from that period. And because Blake's parents were not members of the Church of England, um, their baptisms are not necessarily registered in the church records, which is all there was at that time. Um, at one stage, his parents were followers of Emanuel Swedenborg, and they went to the Swedenborgian church. You know, the Swedenborg Society still going big headquarters in Bloomsbury. Um, and uh, if you were a Swedenborgian and you had them baptize your children, they wouldn't necessarily be in the church records. So we don't know whether Robert was a bit older or a bit younger. You know, Blake's biography, um, I mean, people have even written articles about the problem of the fact that there were quite a number of people called William Blake in London. And when you go into the documents, you can't always tell which is which. And some, more than one of these people was an engraver, just to complicate matters further. So there are a number of Blakes around, and some of them are engravers. So <laughs> we're in very shadowy territory. Um, the early part of Blake's life is pretty mis misty. So there's no answer, I'm afraid. Um, I, thought, I thought a good way into looking at particular uh, material of Blake's might be to have a look at songs of innocence and experience. Um, and we've already looked at the, the um, title page there, as, as you know. So this, this is the sort of, this is the combined book as it became. Um, one, a, a useful thing to know perhaps in the background is that um, Blake had, had written and published Songs of Innocence in 1789, so probably before the French Revolution broke out. Um, and then the French government was overthrown, um, European war started soon afterwards. So all that kind of happened just after Songs of Innocence came out. Blake's um, next work really emphasized the dark side of things a bit more. So um, here we go with um, combined experience. Um, from one point of view, innocence and experience can be thought of as childhood and adulthood. But of course, given Blake's ideas about contraries, there are also aspects of ourselves as well. You know, to put it in extreme terms, we've all got innocent child and the old cynic 
within us. And they all debate about things, and so the songs do the same. Anyway, the collection begins with Songs of Innocence, and here is the frontispiece, um, as always, much, much yellower than it should be, so um, you'll have imaginatively to kind of tone down the yellow in that picture. Um, that is the poet as the pastoral shepherd. The, those objects behind him are sheep. It may not be immediately ob obvious, but he's, he's, he's got his sheep here, and he's got his pipe, and he's going to play music. Um, and it, it, in fact, illustrates the, the opening line of the collection. Um, On a cloud, I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped, he wept to hear, and so on. So there's the child. Now you see the child is, is like the poetic inspiration. He's the spiritual angelic child who appears to the poet and says, sing a song about a lamb. And um, there's the poet underneath. But it's all done in this nice countryside um, pastoral context. And here's the, here's the inner title page with the mother of a nurse reading to the children. There we are. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee, on a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer, piper, pipe that song again. So I piped, he wept to hear, drop thy happy pipe. Piper, drop thy happy pipe. Sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sang the same again. Well, he paused with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all men. So I wrote my happy songs and so on. So what's, what's happening though is that you've got, a, you've got the, the poem begins as music. Piper, Piper song. Then he's told to sing it, so it suddenly becomes words. So he sings the song. Then he's told to sit down and write it, so it becomes written in the book. So you've got almost the, um, the materialization of the poem from pure music through song into written words. So um, it's, it's taking us right through the process. I'm just dealing with something that's popped up on the computer screen here. Um, the, the poems in, in Songs of Innocence often depict a complete world, and I'm giving you, um, this is a rather fancy version that somebody put on, um, on YouTube, but um, it's useful because it gives you the whole poem at one glance. These are actually two different pages. But the echoing green, um, is a poem basically about children playing on the village green. I often think of this when I see a children's playground in a park, you know. Um, but it actually opens out to become something much more than that. Um, so what does it say, the echoing green? The sun does arise and makes happy the skies. The merry bells ring to welcome the spring. The skylark and flush, the birds of the bush, Sing loud or around to the bell's cheerful sound, while our sports shall be seen on the echoing green. Old John, with white hair, 
does laugh away care, sitting under the oak among the old folk. <laughs> they laugh at our play, and soon they all say, such, such were the joys when we all, girls and boys, in our youth time were seen on the echoing green. And then the final verse, till the little ones, weary, no more can be merry, the sun does descend and our sports have an end. Round the laps of their mothers, many sisters and brothers, like birds in their nests, are ready for rest. And sport no more seen on the darkening green. Um, very simple language, of course. It's, it, you know, it's nursery rhyme language, basically. Um, but of course, what, what you realize when you get to the end of it is that this is the cycle of human life. Um, and you know, the hint is dropped by that last word, the darkening green, perhaps. And um, the, uh, the, whole, the whole poem is, is designed, really, to, to encompass the human lifespan within a day and within the process of aging. So you have, you have old John with white hair, and the, and the illustrations bring this out further. You've got, um, you've got the very stylized mushroom-like oak tree in the middle. Um, the children in a circle around it, the two mothers with the young children at their knees in the center. Um, then you've got the, you've got the various um, games and sports. You've got a boy on the left with a cricket bat, boy on the right bowling a hoop. Um, then you go to the second page. In the, in the original book, of course, these are separate pages. They're, they're just put here together for convenience. Um, interesting that the, 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 the children are a bit older, and they're now, they've climbed up into this vine, which kind of frames everything, and they're picking the grapes. Um, you've obviously got a symbolic depiction of adolescence there, haven't you? These are now teenagers, they're entering into adulthood, they're starting to pick the grapes, if you like, the fruit of the adult world as they enter into it. Still, still sweet for them, but um, it, it clearly is a vine. Um, there's, I suppose, old John at, 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 the, at the bottom of the page. Um, Child with cricket bat here, that's 18th century cricket bat. Um, look at the way the details are handled. One child with a big kite on the back, but doesn't it suggest an angel's wings? On the other side, girl, presumably with a straw hat, but it, uh, it's like a halo, isn't it? So um, you, you've got the sense that you can still see the pure spiritual world through the presence of the children. You're, you're right on that boundary between the, the, the material and the spiritual. And the boy here, who's got a big cluster of grapes, handing it down to the girl. So much is going on. And this is all in a picture that's that size. Literally that size. It's smaller than a postcard. Um, and all this has been, first of all, it's been etched onto copper, printed, hand-colored. Um, it is, the, the detail is just astonishing. It's, it's a beautiful miniature work. 
Um, and, and of course, it looks, it, it looks better on the small scale because it becomes crude when you blow it up like this. Um, but wonderful. And such a good example of the way that, um, that, that Blake can compress a big vision in, into a very small narrative. Um, you can kind of reflect on this poem. I, I mean, I've read this poem a million times, and, and it still moves me so much. You know. And I think of this poem, every, every time I see a children's playground with kids in it, I think this is echoing green, you know? It's just so obvious. Um, here's the famous lamb, little lamb who made the, Dostono who made the. Um, I guess, I guess we, we, we probably all know this poem, don't we? Um, the, 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 the lamb. First of all, it, it's framed like a typical 18th century children's religious poem. Um, little lamb who made the dust owner who made the, okay, we're going to be taught about God the creator and perhaps about Jesus. But it goes it, it deeper than that. Um, second, second verse, which replies to the question, little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. Ridiculously simple. Very, very plain. But um, what it's saying is that the child and the Lamb are both, if you like, names of God. Um, even, even, even until the very last little chorus at the end, the name of God is not specifically mentioned, but the, the, the creating energy, the creating spirit, has different names. One name is a child, one name is a Lamb. And of course, in the background, um, it's a bit like the echoing green, because behind this there are, if, if you look for them, there are darker things. Um, the lamb will eventually be killed. The child, well, if it's Jesus, will be crucified. Um, the, 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 the dark side is there, and yet it's not, it's never mentioned, it's entirely innocent. Um, it's just a fun little, little rhyme for a child. But there's another detail. Well, there's several details. Actually. I mean, one, one is that, like so many of the poems in Songs of Innocence, the poem is framed in this wonderful flourishing vegetation. Um, it's a theme, visually, that goes right through the book. Over and over again, you have the text framed in these flowing plants, trees, vines, all kinds of things. Um, here, it's a, it's a very thin tree going up, um, and then round it, you've got this spiralling vine, which, which uh, I suppose slightly could, uh, could have perhaps serpent connotation. I don't think it particularly does in this picture, but the vine is growing round it. Um, the, 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 the poems are, are so often framed in this way, as if... Um, I don't know really, as if to sort of suggest that they are inside a certain world, or that we're looking at them through, through something. Um, but there's another detail which goes all the way through 
songs of innocence. And that is that there is, there is a, a stream running across the bottom of the page. You see here? It's like a little... Um, I don't know quite what to make of this. No, nobody seems to discuss this in any detail. None of the critics seem to talk about it. But to me, it suggests that we as the readers, probably adults, are looking at this scene across... A, a boundary that we can't immediately pass almost. It's as if the, the world of innocence is just a little bit separated from us. And there is this stream in between. Something, something is flowing there which we are going to have to cross to get to it. Or something like that. But picture after picture has that stream flowing across the bottom quite distinctly. And you, you start, once you notice it, you start thinking, why are, are all of these scenes on the other side of that little river, you know? And we think, well, we're a little bit separated from it. But imagine this if we, we can get across. But we're always going to wake up and find we're not quite across it, you know? We're here. Um, we mentioned contouries. Without contouries, there's no progression. And of course, the whole, the whole idea of putting together two collections, innocence and experience, is, is to use that idea of, of the contouries. You can, you can see them as both existing side by side, or you can ask yourself, is one better than the other, or whatever. And of course, the, um, in, in this case, sorry, something keeps popping up on the screen here. In this case, the contrary to the lamb is obviously our friend the tiger, which we all know, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? what the hand dare seize the fire, and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart. And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet, what the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain, what the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Well, um, a wonderfully enigmatic poem. I mean, talk about a poem that rouses the faculties to act, as Blake put it. I mean, you know, people have, people have written entire books about this poem. What does it mean? It's all those details. What are they? Where do they come from? What, what do they signify? Um, notice that, the again, we've got the poem enclosed in vegetation, but now it's a sort of fairly possibly dead-looking tree. It's, it's certainly not flourishing in the way that those vines were. Um, the, the poor old tiger um, at the bottom, in every copy of this book, the poor old tiger never looks that impressive. Um, though uh, People used to say, did Blake ever see a tiger? Well, the answer is he did, because there was a tiger in the menagerie at the Tower of London, believe it or not. They had a zoo in the Tower of London in his time, and there was a tiger in it. 
Um, and we know that because it was drawn by George Stubbs, who's more famous for drawing horses, but Stubbs drew the tiger. Um, however, um, the tiger wasn't in very good shape, and it is possible that Blake only saw it after it was dead and stuffed, which might account for the <laughs> stiff, glassy-eyed look. I don't know. I mean, maybe this is being fanciful, but it may be a stuffed tiger, or it may not. We're not quite sure about that. But anyway, but looking at the, at the poem itself, first point, of course, is that this, in, in the bigger structure of the book, this balances the lap. Um, we've got we've got the lamb here and we've got the tiger here, so they 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 are a pair. And if you like, they absolutely sum up innocence and experience. Um, what what else? Well, first of all, of course, the the tiger is being equated with fire. It's burning bright, but the whole thing is completely visionary. I mean, in in the forest of the night, what's that? Well, it's. It's, it's, it's anything or nothing. It's in, it's in our minds, it's in our imagination. We can picture it. It's, you know, it's a wonderful concept. But the, the poem, as with the, the lab, the key questions in the poem are about making this thing. The lamb is all about who made thee and so on. And here, it's, it's how was the tiger made? Um, Lots and lots of things are brought in. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? Well, th that suggests that the tiger is like a star or a planet or, or perhaps a heavenly energy. This is, this is a, a fire. The eyes are a fire that burns in the skies. Okay. Um, and then you get this question, which seems to come out of nowhere. I mean, partly, Blake gets away with these questions in the poem because he just throws them at you with such confidence. Um, and you're partly forced to think, what on earth does that mean? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? Well, the one thing that's clear about that is that we're talking about somebody at this moment who, who seizes fire. Well, in Greek myth, that would be Prometheus, wouldn't it? Who stole fire from the gods in heaven and brought it down to help man. Um, on what wings dare he aspire? Well, there are act actually echoes of Milton's description of Satan in Paradise Lost there. So perhaps the, perhaps the tiger has something to do with Satan, who, who is also a kind, of, a kind of thief or rebel against God. That kind of energy. So Prometheus, Satan. Um, then we get a series of lines which make the tiger into a kind of industrial product, not in the sense of coming from a big factory, but being forged by hard physical work. Um, what shoulder and what art could twist of thy heart. Well, I think he's thinking of rope making there, isn't he? When thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet carried something? It's not quite clear, is it? What the hammer? What the chain? In what furnace was thy vein? Well, we're, we're looking at a, a forge, aren't we, here? It's like a blacksmith's forge or something. So we've got, we've got all these very physical ideas of something being made, like, like a great... Okay device of some sort, of a thing from a forge, and yet it's living as well. What the anvil, 
that's the smith. You remember the, the image of, of the craftsman with the big hammer and the tongs in, in that picture we looked at a few minutes ago. That seems to be in the background here, doesn't it? And then, then we go to a different um, angle again. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. And you think, oh yeah, well, but, but when was that? <laughs> well, the answer seems to be it was in the, in, in the war in heaven when, when the rebellious angels rose up against God and refused to obey. I mean, it's all described in Paradise Lost. There's a lot of Milton in Blake. Um, Blake very much saw himself as Milton's succession and successor, and Milton describes the war in heaven. Um, the, uh, the angels, um, if we can take it the stars were angels, the angels at one moment in Paradise Lost, when they rebel against God and Satan's followers say, we won't serve God anymore, they throw down their spears as a sign that they're not going to obey orders anymore like soldiers throwing down their weapons. So possibly that's one of the things that's coming in here. These are the angels who rebel against God, refusing to serve. But they're also watering heaven with their tears. And of course, when you just read the poem, the stars, it's not, he doesn't mention angels, he mentions stars. The stars flew down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. Well, what do you think of? You think of the light from the stars coming down to earth, don't you? So he manages to get that in as well. There's a sense of the, the spears or the tears coming down from the stars. It's like the energy being rained down by the stars on, on us. Did he smile, whoever he is, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? So, well, one way of looking at that question is to say, from the human standpoint, are God and Satan actually the same person? Two faces of the same person? Or maybe not. Maybe the point is, no, he who made the lamb didn't make thee, you know. But of course lambs and tigers are both animals in, in the zoological world, so they come from the same source. Yes, okay. But what they symbolize, perhaps, is the tiger our uh, anger, our rage, is the tiger, our rebellion, our revolution against things, uh, is the lamb our, our love, our kindness, our softness, but also our vulnerability or our, our sheep-like readiness to be sacrificed without question. Or, you know, all of these things. Blake is, again, it's, he's, he's arousing faculties to act. We think about it, we turn it over, we look at it from different points of view, we keep seeing different possibilities in it. It's like looking into a crystal that you turn around and you see so many different things, but you never get to the end of deciding exactly what's in there. And then um, back to the a similar ending point to the start. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame this time? At the beginning it was could frame, but now it's dare frame thy fearful symmetry. So the tiger is so much more than just a, a, an actual tiger. But maybe it isn't. The actual tiger is such a wonder as well. Perhaps that's all it needs to be. You can go to and fro between different levels. And Blake is just throwing us into this, or throwing this into us, and say, okay, what do you make of this, you know? And 
It's, it's endlessly fascinating. And there's no frame around them. There isn't a... The, 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 well... Mm, the, there is almost. You've got the tree all the way around to there, and then the T of the turns into a plant that goes all the way down here. So there's a bit of a frame, but it's not, it's not a nice flourishing frame covered with grapes the way it was in the other frame. It's, it's sort of, it's a bit stuck. But there's a bit, yeah, yeah, there's a bit, of, oh, frame, dare frame. Well, it is framed, yes. That's a nice point. It's framed in something that looks a bit dead, isn't it, really? That tree, I mean, the tree's beautiful, but it's not, uh, it hasn't got the leaves on it. I don't know. I mean, and, and it's just endless. It's, it's fascinating. Um, okay, here's a, more, here's a controversial one. The Little Black Boy. Um, this poem was written during the um, anti-slavery agitation as, as this was gaining momentum with people like Clarkson and Wilberforce campaigning to put an end to slavery. Um, there, was, there, there were all kinds of artworks being produced at this time um, in support of the um, agitation against the slave trade. Yeah, so, so the poem says, My mother bore me in the southern wild, and I am dark, but oh, my soul is white. White as an angel is the English child, but I am black as if bereaved of light. So at the beginning, it's very much playing on that, what would have been the popular British stereotype. You know, white is, is sort of radiant and good. Black hmm, looks a bit, uh, you know, a bit dodgy. I am black as if bereaved of light. My mother taught me underneath a tree, and sitting down before the heat of day, she said, she held me on her lap and kissed me, and pointing to the east began to say, look on the rising sun, there God does live, and gives his light and gives his heat away. I may have to look up the poem to, has anybody got a copy of this handy? Yes, let you read this bit for us, or shall I read it? I've got the microphone, haven't I? Thanks, yes. Yeah, look on the rising sun. There God does live, and gives his light, and gives his heat away. And flowers and trees, and beasts and men receive comfort in morning, joy in the noonday. Just a bit as I remember. And we are put on earth a little space, that we may learn to bear the beams of love. And these black bodies, and this sunburnt face, is but a cloud, and like a shady grove, for when our souls have learned the heat to bear, the cloud will vanish. We shall hear his voice saying, Come out from the grove, my love and care, and round my golden tent like lambs rejoice. Thus did my mother say, and kissed me, and thus I say to little English boy, When I from black and he from white cloud free, and round the tent of God like lambs we joy, I'll shade him from the heat till he can bear to lean in joy upon our father's knee. 
And then I'll stand and stroke his silver hair and be like him, and he will then love me. It's actually pretty devastating when you get to the end because the suggestion is that perhaps the white boy is not able to love the other child until they both look alike. Now, obviously, Blake, to some extent, is drawing on the contemporary stereotypes of dark and light. And thank you very much for that loan, by the way. That was really helpful. Um, but he's also, he's also really criticizing the sense that, for some, it's difficult to love across that line of difference. Because, actually, both from the point of view of innocence, both the white body and the black body are clouds hiding the spirit. I mean, Blake here is drawing on the conventional view of the soul as it were, sort of inside the body. And so both must be removed. But it's, it's, it's kind of, it, it's disturbing that sense that um, for some it's not possible without difficulty to love across the lines of difference. That really, really does make you think. But the, the grasp of child psychology is quite acute, actually, because I, I, I've actually heard a little boy saying, um, when, quite recently, um, when, when we're both dead and in heaven, will my big sister be nice to me then? You know, this is how children think sometimes. Um, because his sister was being nasty to him. And he thought, well, once they're both in heaven, she'll start being nice to him. Um, and I thought, my goodness, that's almost exactly the same as what's here, you know. But, but of course, with the, the addition here of that point about the, um, the difference between the dark and the light body. And, and in the front, what have we got? We've got the river flowing across again. And there is... Um, God is mentioned in the poem um, and we've, we've got the traditional image of Jesus there, haven't we? With a shepherd's crook, so Jesus as the good shepherd, sheep in the background picking up the pastoral theme that goes through the Songs of Innocence and a rather melancholy tree a sort of weeping willow over them, I guess I guess in signifying death or something like that, and the halo could be the setting sun behind the figure of Jesus, um, or it could just be the halo. Lots of pictorial ambiguities like that, and then we've got the little, the little frame of plants, as in so many of the other pictures. But it's kind of it's 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 a slightly disturbing poem. Um, sad. A sad little poem, I think. And it, it, not directly attacking the slave trade, but attacking the, the sense of alienation and difference which can be created by what we would now call racism. Um, I'll show you another picture without a poem. This, this is actually the frontispiece to the Songs of Experience. Um, we'll have to go back a bit so you can compare these. Uh, Let's look back at the frontispiece to Songs of Innocence first. I mean, I've been, I've been messing up the order of the poems. Now, there's the poet as Shepherd Piper with the 
angel or spiritual child flying in the air above. Now when we get to going into songs of experience, um, the child is now sitting on the poet's head. He hasn't got his pipe anymore. Um, and he's advancing with a certain uh, look of apprehension as if going into the dark. It's not so evident in this copy from the way Blake's coloured it, but in some copies, he really looks as if he's going into the darkness, and it's almost as if the child is like a lantern on his head, like a miner's helmet or something. Um, the child is now, in a way, his, his guide as he goes into the darker world of experience. Um, there's no river across the front. You've got the uh, climbing tendrils of ivy going up the tree, the, the, the frame and the sheep as before. Um, this, this particular plate actually is from a copy of the songs which Blake um, decorated especially. It wasn't turned up as a book. He drew these decorative borders around because um, in, in, later in life Blake sort of would print off individual copies of the songs of innocence and of experience for people who wanted to buy them. So people would buy them as a one-off, and he would get the plates out, print them, and then, and then hand-colour them, or sometimes his wife coloured them. One of the interesting things is that we don't actually know which copies were coloured by Blake and which were coloured by his wife. Um, sometimes Catherine Blake um, did the watercolouring as well, and we don't really know which are which very often. So I suspect with the fancy border this was done by Blake. I don't think Catherine would have done that, but who knows? It's a lovely image, um, even in the rather yellow version that we've got here. So, um, an, another, another contrast. Let's go back to the title page. Here's the title page of Songs of Innocence. I, ca I can't see a way to skip directly from one to the other, so I'm having to flash through them. Here's the title page to Songs of Experience. Oh, sorry, there we are. And you see now we've got... We've got a scene of mourning, basically. Um, the parents are aged figures um, lying in bed or being got ready for the tomb um, with the children lamenting over them um, in the bottom half of the picture. But of course, if you go to the upper half, it's, it's all dancing and rejoicing again. So you've even got the sense of contraries within the single plate there. Um, there's always this sort of balance going on. You, you, just when you think you've got Blake pinned down, you find a bit of the opposite has come in from somewhere. So, uh, you know, it, 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 I guess what's happening is that the rejoicing is taking place around the word songs, and the mourning is taking place around the, wor the word experience. But, you know, maybe that's cutting it into bits too strongly. Um, we, because of Blake, we often tend to think of innocence and experience as natural opposites. But, of course, they weren't natural opposites until Blake made them so. He just, by that title, he has somehow established innocence and experience as a polarity which people are constantly using in titles and in allusions and in poems and all sorts of things. Um, is experience really the opposite of innocence? I don't know. Um, it becomes so in Blake because I suppose experience is what bat batters you, you know, so that you're in danger of losing your innocence. 
So uh, it's, it's, it's both a joyful and a sad title page, really. Um, we must finish in a minute because you would like to have some lunch, and so would I. Um, I'm just giving you the introduction to songs of experience here. Um, and you'll remember that the introduction to innocence is the... Uh, oh, sorry, I haven't got it. Where's it gone? The piper. Well, never mind. We had the piper. Um, the introduction to experience is the voice of the bard. Hear the voice of the bard who present, past and future sees. So for the songs of experience, we've got a different kind of poet. Um, innocence was the pastoral shepherd playing on his pipe. Um, experience is the aged bard with his big harp telling us much more serious things. Um, hear the voice of the bard who present, past and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees. It's like the voice of God walking in the garden after the fall of Adam and Eve, isn't it? Calling the lapsed soul and weeping in the evening dew that might control the starry pole and fallen, fallen light renew. O earth, O earth, return, arise from out the dewy grass. Night is worn and the morn rises from the slumberous mass. So it's saying, O earth, O earth, return, arise. So the voice of the bard is calling us to rise up once again. In innocence, we didn't need to be told that because everything's fine and we're already awake. But now the earth is asleep and needs to be woken. Turn away no more. Why wilt thou turn away? The starry floor, the watery shore is given thee till the break of day. So I think the the floor and the shore, kind of, we won't need those once the break of day comes. And then we've got the, the chimney sweeper, a little black thing among the snow, crying, weep, weep, in notes of woe. And this is real social satire here. Where thy father and mother pray? They are both gone up to the church to pray. Because I was happy upon the heath and smiled among the winter's snow, they clothed me in the clothes of death and taught me to sing the notes of woe. And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury and are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. That's really bitter. Um, and of course not literally true because... Um, the, the kind of parents who would have to apprentice their child to a chimney sweeping master would probably not be the kind of parents who would be going to church to praise God. I mean, it's a social satire, really. It's, you know, um, these children, of course, were, um, were used to, to climb the big um, 18th century chimneys and sweep the soot out, and they usually died of skin cancer as a result or in accidents. Um, but uh, look at that. They're gone to praise God and his priest and king. From this point of view, the whole establishment, including the church and its God, are wicked. They, they rest on the poverty and misery of such people as this. So a very bitter political... I mean, you, you can't envisage this as having been um, a children's book, really. By this time, Songs of Innocence 
has been conscripted with experience into a book aimed at adults, really, to, to open their eyes. Just show you this, which, which I, I love, the, um, the nurse's song. Um, the nurse doting over the child, but secretly harboring envy and malice. When the voices of children are heard on the green, and whisperings are in the dale, the joys of my youth rise fresh in my mind, my face turned green and pale, envious. Then come home, my children, the sun has gone down, and the dews of night arise. Your spring and your day are wasted in play, and your winter night in disguise. It's like the opposite of the echoing green. This, this woman is, is cynical and bitter. And in the picture, she's sort of pretending to dote over this spoiled-looking little boy and combing his hair. But really, you know, she's all bitter and twisted inside, and she's lost her innocence. And the little boy also looks as if he's a bit of a twister, doesn't he? He doesn't look, he looks as if, and, and look at all the grapes surrounding it, you know. He's, he's pretending to be a goody-goody, but he's not really, is he? It's uh, another, another bit of satire, and then, then we've got the... Who yeah. was the mother figure? Sorry? Who was the mother child on the side, on the right Yes, there's a, there's a little girl sitting down. I don't know what role she's playing particularly, but she's there, yes, yes. Then we've got the rose, of course, well, it, along with the tiger, one of the most mysterious things Blake ever wrote. O oh, rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Well, you can, you know, you can think about that endlessly and find different meanings in it. Again, it rouses the faculties to act. Um, and London, which is not a celebration of the city, but a, a blistering attack on it. Look at the last verse. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. So even, even the big limousine going to the wedding becomes a hearse, you know. Um, the, the city just seen as a place of horror and corruption. And the old, the old man now, a beggar being led along by the little boy. And here's the ancient bard. We had him in the introduction to Songs of Experience, but we didn't see him. But there he is. And nicely, the ancient bard is singing surrounded by young people. Um, and the poem begins, Youth of delight, come hither and see the opening morn, image of truth newborn. Doubt is fled in clouds of reason, dark disputes and artful teasing. Folly is an endless maze, tangled roots perplex her ways. How many have fallen there? They stumble all night over the bones of the dead and feel they know not what but care and wish to lead others when they should be led. 
but the ancient bard is now speaking to young people. The interesting thing about that, one, one thing about it that I think is interesting is that that was originally the last page of the Songs of Innocence. And when Blake added Songs of Experience, he moved it and put it at the end of the whole collection. So you've now got the poems bracketed between the innocent piper and the experienced bard. But the bard is still talking to young people which seems to strengthen the sense of hope. At the end of experience, you come to this inspiring poem. He's being critical, but he's got a young audience, and so there seems to be promise for the future. And the colours are beautiful. Um, we have grass in front rather than a river, certainly in this copy. And that, that winds up the collection. So, um, I think it's now 1.15. I think we should stop and have some lunch, don't you? You've, you've been bombarded with enough for one session. Thank you very much. I thought it would be worthwhile having a look at the book of Blake's, which, which has the, the most memorable sayings and... Um, the most thought-provoking teachings in. It's an absolute compendium of um, aphorisms, proverbs, and provocative statements. So it gives, you a, it gives you a really good way into Blake's thinking. And that, that is this, this book called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, Blake produced this in 1794. So it's actually... Um, engraved and printed in the same year as the Songs of Experience. So, um, 1794, and it, it very much belongs to the world of Songs of Experience. Uh, as you can see, this is the page, um, as always, much yellow than it should be. Um, that sky should be pretty much blue rather than yellow, but there we go. Um, and as you can see, um, it is, again, an exercise in playing constantly against each other. Um, the whole idea of marrying heaven and hell immediately has that idea of linking the contending opposites to each other. How do you marry heaven and hell? Well, I don't know, a bit like the same way you marry innocence and experience. They are polar opposites between which um, human existence is lived, I suppose. Um, and the title page actually illustrates that idea of a marriage, because as you can see, you've got, um, at the bottom of the page, you've got male and female figures embracing amidst flames and smoke somewhere down under the surface of the earth. And then as you go up, you're, you're looking at a kind of cross-section through the earth. As you go up, you get to the surface of the land, and then the trees, and um, what appears to be one human figure lying at the root of a tree, dead, asleep, we don't know, and another figure leaning over it, but also a quite serene-looking couple walking along at the left-hand side. So. And, and, and in between, lots of, you can just about, I keep thinking of the cable, but not actually, the cable's self-contained, so I can walk around. You've got lots of little figures in pairs, kind of streaming upwards here. So there's, there's your marriage going on, and there are other possibly married 
couples, who are they? Well, we don't know, but it's the marriage of heaven and hell, and decorative lettering at the top, very, very fancy and twiddling for the word marriage, and then rather solid for the word heaven. Um, and this, this is where Blake really um, fronts us kinds of startling ideas. Um, so let's... Where's the clicker? Here's my machine. Here we have to see if it works. Okay. Right. Um, the argument... Uh, this is like the synopsis or the outline of what's going on. Um, so pretty hard put to decipher what's going on from reading this. So it's, it's cryptic as any, anything Blake ever wrote, really. Um, it tells a kind of story um, in rather biblical terms. Um, it starts off, Rintra roars and shakes his fires in the burdened air. Hungry clouds swag on the deep. Well, who is Rintra? No, but it sounds as if he's a kind of god like that because he's roaring and shaking his fires in the air. And then we've got a story. Once meek and in a perilous path, the just man kept his course along the vale of death. Roses are planted where thorns grow, and on the barren heath sing the honeybees. Then the perilous path was planted, and a river and a spring on every cliff and tomb, and on the bleached bones red clay brought forth. Till the villain left the paths of ease, to walk in perilous paths and drive the just man into barren climes. Now the sneaking serpent walks in mild humility, and the just man rages in the wilds where lions roam. <coughs> and then again, Lintra roars, shakes his fires in the burdened air. Hungry clouds swag on the deep. Well, what's that all about? Um, the, the obvious things about that, if you know your Bible, um, even as well as Blake did, is that all these things about um, the just man keeping his course along the veil of death, um, the, uh, the bleached bones um, bringing clay, and so on, obviously got echoes of various passages out of the Psalms and out of the Old Testament prophets, um, probably, uh, among other things, thinking of Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones, which Ezekiel in his vision sees brought back to life and resurrected by the power of God. Um, the basic story here seems to be that at the beginning you have a perilous path through the wilderness. The just man walks on this perilous path and around him um, things flourish and blossom. The thorns bring forth roses. The barren has honeybees. But at a certain point, the just man is pushed off the path by the villain. To villain left the paths of ease, to walk in perilous paths and drive the just man into barren climes. Well, what's that all about? Um, the, the most straightforward explanation of that, and I think what it suggests to the reader, if you don't worry too much about the minute details, is that the path of spirituality has been taken over by villains, by hypocrites, by fakes, by people 
who are pretending to walk the holy Justin has now been driven out into the wilderness. I think what this is about, broadly, is Blake explaining his own position, that he is now someone who has to, has to rest from the margins because the church has been taken by um, basically the kind of clergyman that you meet in the novels of Jane Austen, you know, careerists who want a good living and enjoy themselves by um, telling other people how to behave. But the true mystics and visionaries have been forced out into the wilderness. So the just man, the sneaking serpent, walks in mild humility. I, we, we mustn't worry too much about the fact that the serpent is walking. You know, maybe it doesn't have legs. But anyway, we know who the sneaking serpents are. The sneaking serpents are walking in mild humility, pretending to be very humble. And the just man rages in the wilds where lions roam. So everything's been turned topsy-turvy, really. The place of the spiritual teacher has been taken by serpents. Um, and the, 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 the truly spiritual people are now the angry ones who are out in exile. Um, along with this, you've got, you've got a beautiful, very uh, calm-looking um, border of two young ladies um, with a tree, very much like the, um, the pictures in Songs of Innocence, and a flute or something being handed down by one to the other. Um, two naked figures at the bottom, um, perhaps echoing the title page, not sure. Anyway, um, we go on to, find my clicker again, um, something much more dramatic in visual terms. Now, we've got a figure bathed in flames and seeming to enjoy it. Um, and at the bottom, we have a female figure giving birth and a male and female running. So, loads of energy. And Blake says, as a new heaven has begun, and it is now 33 years since its advent, we'll come back to that in a minute, the eternal hell revives. And lo, Swedenborg is the angel sitting at the tomb. His writings are the linen clothes folded up. Now is the dominion of Edom and the return of Adam into paradise. And he gives a reference to Isaiah there. Without contraries is no progression. This is where I took that quotation from in the morning. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate are necessary to human existence. From these contraries spring what the religious call good and evil. Good is the passive that obeys reason. Evil is the active springing from energy. Good is heaven. Evil is hell. Well, we're being bombarded with ideas here. Um, First of all, what does he mean by saying that a new heaven has begun? As a new heaven has begun, and it is now 33 years since its advent, the eternal hell revives. Well, one thing that Blake is saying, we'll forget 33 years for the moment, is that you can't have a new heaven without a new hell. As soon as heaven arises, hell arises too. Um, contraries, again. There's always opposition, balance, contrary. Why 33 years? Well, um, 
Christ began to teach when he was 33. That's the first point. So the proclamation of the new dispensation came in his 33rd year. Um, Second point, Blake's doing it in 1794, which is 33 years since the, the mystic or visionary Emanuel Swedenborg had declared that a new heaven was opened. Swedenborg kind of declared a new spiritual epoch in, what would it be, 1761? I think that's right, isn't it? And so, that happened. A lot of this seems to be a kind of satire against um, a previous visionary in the form of Swedenborg. So he's taking Swedenborg's date for the start of a new, a new heaven and saying, okay, well, in that case, a new, a new hell has got to arise as well. Um, thirdly, it is... Um. <coughs> I was going to say, uh, um, yes, um, Blake himself, um, Blake himself was 33 when this was written. So we've got a coincidence of Swedenborg, Blake, and Jesus um, all having important sort of 33rd anniversaries, as it were. Um, and Blake, Blake is, is proclaiming this doctrine of contraries, basically. Without contraries, there's no progression. And he goes further. He says, from these contraries, from attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate, from these contraries spring what the religious call good and evil. So he seems to be actually questioning the concept of good and evil as such. Are, are there such things? What are they? And he says that he very, very subversive. He's being very troubling. He says good is the passive that obeys reason. Evil is the active. In other words, he's taking us away from the normal ideas of good and evil completely. And he's saying, or pretending to say, that... Um, Good is passivity. Is he perhaps um, parodying the sort of ideas that you might hear from the pulpit? Good is conformity. Evil is anything that demands change. Good is the passive that obeys reason. Evil is the active springing from energy. And then he says, good is heaven, evil is hell. This, this is just following on to that introduction where he talks about the way that the perilous path has been taken over by hypocrites. So I think what we're getting here is a satire on the official view of Christianity, which is basically if you do what you're told and follow the conventions, you're a good person. Um, if you try and change things, if you do anything that's disruptive, you're an evil person. And, you know, and that kind of simplicity... Um, is, is, is being mocked. Anyway, that's, that's where my passage about contrarieties came from. So, now he, he, he gives the floor to the devil. So, we've got the voice of the devil. Let's see what the devil's got to say about this. All Bibles, or sacred codes, have been the causes of the following errors. Well, I mean, that's blasphemous from the word go, isn't it? Um, first of all, because he seems to be suggesting several Bibles, all Bibles, or sacred codes. In other words, there's not just a Bible. Lots of Bibles, lots of sacred codes. 
But not only that, but they're all wrong because they've all given rise to errors. What are the errors? Number one, that man has two real existing principles, a body and a soul. So the, f the first untruth is the idea that our bodies and souls are separate. Blake seems to be saying, well, question that. Maybe the body and the soul are not two split apart separate things. Secondly, that energy called evil is alone from the body and that reason called good is alone from the soul. In other words, he's questioning the, um, the view that um, everything prompted by the body is wrong and good solely comes from reason. And of course, reason is a huge, um, almost divine, um, dominant quality in 18th century thought. Um, you know, people like Newton and Locke had argued that you could work everything by reason, rather than imagination, intuition, passion, all these other things interested in. So reason is the only guide. So that's another mistake believing that, it, that evil comes from the body and that reason um, simply comes from the soul and is always good. Thirdly, the third error um, is the idea that God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. So Blake is subverting the conventional idea of hell. But he's, and of course, he's also playing on that idea of connecting energy and evil. Um, the idea that if you, if you follow your passions or if you step out of line, you're automatically evil and will go to hell forever. He's blowing that apart as well. So this is all the voice of the devil. And then, the, and so we're, we're talking about contrarieties, aren't we? Contraries. So he says the following contraries to these are true. So, first of all, man has no body distinct from his soul. Interesting, you might think Blake is going to say because the soul is merely something arising from the body. Not at all. What he actually says is, for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in this age. In other words, it's, it's, it's not that our soul is some sort of byproduct of the body. On the contrary, our bodies are one part of our soul, simply the part that you can see with the five senses. So that means that, in a sense, the body is also a spiritual thing, but it's also a sacred thing. But, of course, the soul goes further. There's also other parts of the soul. So the body is part of the soul. Secondly, he says, energy is the only life and is from the body. And reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Energy is eternal delight. He finishes up. Now, that's interesting. Energy is the only life and is from the body. So the body is the energy source. Reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. What does I think what he means is reason is simply knowing where to stop. The bound or outward circumference 
In other words, reason isn't a principle that exists by itself and dictates. Reason is a matter of simply knowing how far to go. So, what really, what, what really counts is energy. And that the body itself is the source of energy, but is also a spiritual entity. This is, you know, this is challenging the faculty to act. None of this is easy. Um, these are complicated, strange, challenging ideas. Um, and I'm suggesting interpretations, but um, I can easily be wrong. And anyway, the whole of this is the voice. So the devil, the devil is making trouble by suggesting all these things. He's, he's, he's twisting and exploding um, the conventional views of the church. Let's have a look at what we've got here. Those, here with more trouble coming, those who restrain desire do so because their is weakened. How about that? And the restrainer or reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling. And being restrained, it by degrees becomes passive till it is only the shadow of desire. Well, that anticipates um, psychoanalysis, doesn't it? The suggestion that um, there's a process of repression whereby desire is suppressed and suppressed until it becomes merely the shadow of itself. You could even say this is Jungian, the idea of the shadow. The history of this, he says, is written in Paradise Lost. So Milton is being dragged into this argument now as well. The history of this is written in Paradise Lost, and the governor, or reason, is called Messiah. So he doesn't think much of Milton's version of the Messiah. Um, and you see at the top of the page, basically you've got an image of um, presumably Satan um, being cast out of heaven in the course of his war against God with, with his horse, sword, and possibly a son, possibly a cannonball. Um, Milton does engage cannon in the war in heaven, oddly enough. Um, flames. So that's, that's the fall of of, uh, of Satan. And the original archangel, or possessor, the command of the heavenly host, is called the devil, or Satan, and his children are called sin and death. But in the book of Job, Milton's Messiah is called Satan. Um, anybody know the book of Job? What does Satan do in the book of Job? Satan is Satan in the book of Job appears to be the right-hand helper of God. God says to Satan, go and take a look at Job. See how he's getting on. Test him, if you like. See if he's really as good as he makes out. So Milton, Blake is saying, well, you know, who is this Satan? Because in, in the book of Job, he seems to be helping God. And, you know, he's part of the divine plan. And yet, in other places, he seems to be God's adversary. So, you know, it's all, all very strange. You can't be sure who, who or what is good and who or what is evil and who or what within yourself is evil either. It's, you know, everything is being stirred up here. And he says, for this history has been adopted by both parties. 
It indeed appeared to reason as if desire was cast out. But the devil's account is that the Messiah fell and of what he stole from the abyss. Okay, well, we go on. There's, there's, I think we can, we can skip a little bit because I want to go to the passage which is headed A Memorable Fancy. Now, Blake is going, he's imitating Wittenborg, who had cosmic journeys to heaven and hell. Blake's going on a cosmic journey to hell. And he says, As I was walking among the fires of hell, delighted with the enjoyments of genius, which to angels look like torment and insanity. The angels don't understand genius. They think it's, they think it's all suffering, but actually these, you know, these are the enjoyments of genius. I collected some of their proverbs, thinking that as the sayings used in a nation mark its character, so the proverbs of hell show the nature of infernal wisdom better than any description of buildings or garments. So we're going to get Proverbs of Hell. And here they are on the next page. Just before we start on the Proverbs of Hell, notice a good little quotation just above. How do you know but every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five. How do you know that every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five? You don't know what that bird experiences. Its experience is perhaps utterly different from what you might think. Imagination, consider the possibility. Now then, so we're going to find out about the nature of hell by collection of its proverbs. The proverbs are fascinating. Greatest collection of Blake's aphorisms and sayings, these proverbs. They're consistent. They go all over the place. They contradict each other deliberately. Uh, and I best hear them in different voices. So I'd like you to get your handouts Turn to the page where you can see the Proverbs of Hell. Um, I'd like to go there. And uh, have you got? Yes. Page headed Proverbs of Hell. Right. Yeah. Um, I w I'd like to go around and read these aloud with each person reading one of these proverbs in turn. Um, we can hear them in different voices. So, yeah, so we're starting with this page here that has the little paragraph at the top and then Proverbs of Hell. Um, I'm going to read the first one. Could, could we then go just uh, across, starting with you, across, 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 till we get to the back of the room? Um, and we'll, uh, if anyone can't read it, then that's fine, just pass it on. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read the first one. And just listen to the experience of each of these proverbs coming in a different voice from a different place. In seed time, teach. In Sorry, I'll start again. <laughs> that's not a good start, is it? In seed time, learn. In harvest, teach. In winter, enjoy. 
Drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Prudence is a rich, happily old age caused by incapacity. Can we do speak, Mr. Chairman? Do you want a microphone? Okay. The cutworm the cut forgives the Dip him in the river who loves water. A fool sees not the same tree that a wise man sees. He whose face, no, a fool. <laughs> yeah? Uh, he who face, whose face gives no light shall never become a star. <laughs> Eternity is in love with the productions of time. The busy bee has no time for sorrow. <coughs> the hours of folly are measured by the clock. But of wise. But of wisdom. But of wisdom, oh sorry, but of wisdom no clock can measure. All wholesome food is caught without a net or a trap. Bring out number, weight, and measure in a year of dearth. No bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. A dead body, uh, a dead body revenges not injuries. The most sublime act is to set another before you. If the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. Folly is a cloth of knavery, is a cloak of knavery. Shame is rule's cloak. are built with stones of law, brothels of bricks of religion. <laughs> the pride of the peacock is the glory of God. 
The lust of the goat is the bounty of God. The wrath of the lion is the wisdom of God. The nakedness of woman is the work of God. Excess of sorrow laughs, excess of joy weeps. The roaring of lions, the howling of wolves, the raging of the raging of the stormy sea and the destructive sword are portions of eternity too great for the eye of man. Okay, Kate, you can do one. The fox condemns the trap, not himself. Very good, one more. Joys impregnate, sorrow brings forth. Okay, very good. Um, I just wanted to, you, to dramatise the sense that these are not really or don't have to be all spoken by the same voice, by the same person. They're like a... I imagine this almost like a radio play with a babel of voices coming from different directions, all making different suggestions, stirring things up, some of them agreeing with each other, some of them con contradicting each other. Um, some of these things are just like uh, old-fashioned um, sayings about time. Um, in seed time, teach. So, I keep doing this, can I? In seed time, learn. In harvest, teach. In winter, enjoy. That's a fairly straightforward thing about phases of life. Um, over the bones of the dead. I think that means don't be afraid to innovate. Just because people have always done something in one way doesn't mean you can't do it differently. Let's change something, you know. Um, prudence. Lovely the way you choose something that could be a name as well. Prudence is a rich, ugly, old maid called... Um, in sometimes claim to be being prudent. They can't do, do something. You know, they, it's, it's a cover for just not, not being able or not being willing to do something. Um, a fool sees not the same tree that a wise man sees. Hey, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Perception, how we see the world, is to do with how we are. No bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. That's a sort of encouragement to the individual to try something, isn't it? Have a go, you know? Um, a dead body revenges not injuries. It's like dead men tell no tales, isn't it? It's, it's quite, a, quite a dark one. Um, prisons are built with stones of law, brothels with bricks of religion. Um, yeah. Well, it's true, prisons are built with stones of law, aren't they? Um, rightly or wrongly. All, all ideologies about what's good are, are also going to produce bad thoughts. People condemned as bad. Um, it's on the point of the Hell, whenever you... Um, 
if you go further down that page where we finished, um, about three quarters of the way down, what is now proved was once only imagined. Interesting. Um, and it's a place of imagination, because imagination opens up possibility. And proved has a slightly different sense in the period Blake's writing. It doesn't only mean demonstrated in the scientific way. It, it can mean experienced as well. So something that you once only imagined, perhaps we can really do it. It's, it's an encouragement to courage, really. Um, one thought fills immensity. Interesting. So if space can be filled with a single thought. A very useful saying I've found, very, very interesting. Everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. He doesn't say everything possible to be believed is true. He says everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. Everything that someone can believe, from some angle or other, it can be seen to resemble a kind of truth. So, okay, consider it. Don't necessarily just reject. So what is truth here? Well, question suggesting pilot, isn't it? Um, expect poison from the standing water. This is like another thing he says later on in the same book. Um, the, the man who never alters his mind is... The man who never alters his opinion is like standing water and breeds reptiles of the mind. Don't fix your opinions dogmatically and be unwilling to change them. Well, there, there, are, there are so many good... Create a little flower is the labour of ages. Well, we know that. Um, okay, so he goes on so there's a long list of these proverbs. I mean, you can read these at home at leisure because it would take us all day to go through them completely. Um, when we get to the end of the list, um, he says, enough or too much. Um, and I think that goes back to his... Um, there's an earlier statement in Among the Proverbs where he says the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom um, and you never know what is enough until you know what is too much. So you have to go too far before you know where to stop. So he's, he's, he's joking, I think he's... He's given us enough or too much. And um, the picture there, you can see, this, this, is, this is Blake um, copying Proverbs, a big scroll which is being shown to him by a devil. And on the other side of him, um, there's an angel who's trying to crib what Blake's writing. He's peering over to try and copy. So the devil is showing him the book. The angel is cheating. Um, we'll just look at a few, a few more selected.
pages of this text. Um, this is a very important passage. Um, it's at this point where Blake seems to be giving us a kind of history of um, a history of conception and in a way a history of religion. Um, as the ancient poets animated all sensible objects with gods or geniuses calling them by the names and adorning them with the properties of woods, rivers, mountains, lakes, cities, nations, and whatever their enlarged and numerous senses could perceive. And particularly, they studied the genius of each city and country, placing it under its mental deity. Till a system was formed which some took advantage of and enslaved the vulgar by attempting to realize or abstract the mental deities from their objects. Thus began priesthood. Choosing forms of worship from poetic tales, and at length they pronounced that the gods had ordered such things. Thus men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast. Let's just sort this out a little bit. The ancient poets animated all sensible objects with gods and geniuses. In other words, um, the, in the ancient world, once upon a time, this is like, this is a myth, isn't it? Once upon a time, there were bards and poets who perceived spirits in the world around them. Gradually, gradually, a system was formed, which some took advantage of and enslaved the vulgar by attempting to realize or abstract the mental deities from their objects. Thus began priesthood. In other words, Blake is saying that you go from a, a, a primitive stage, if you like, where people, particularly the, poet, the, the kind of the poets, the visionaries, the shamans, if you like, perceive spiritual entities in the world around them. To, to a point where this becomes ossified, it becomes rigid, and you have priests who are telling people exactly which God lives where, and they are benefiting, they're making a good living out of it for themselves. They enslave the vulgar. So what was once a spontaneous, if you like, poetic perception of spirituality within the world becomes a rigid system which is administered by a caste of priests. And eventually they turn things back to front. Uh, they say that, that the gods have ordered such things. In other words, rather than them taking advantage of the gods that had been perceived in nature, they're now saying that the gods have put them in charge of running this rigidified system of deities. And Thus, says Blake, men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast. All gods are within us. He doesn't say that all gods are, um, are unreal and we somehow fabricate them. They're real, okay. The gods are real, but they live within us. And we, you know, we, that, if we take that seriously, that, that makes things very different. The gods are not outside us. Well, they may be outside us, 
but they're also in us. We have the divine essences, the divine powers, the gods, whatever you want to call it, within ourselves. We are, we are living with them from day to day, but we don't realize it. Again, it's Blake kind of opening things up. Um, what we think, what we take for granted, what we think is ordinary, is actually vibrating with spiritual energy. And we don't notice it. All deities reside in the human breast. That's all the same. Yeah. 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 So these are yeah, yep, yep. These are these are you know, this this book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, is a wonderful place to just dig for interesting ideas and sayings. It's full of them. I mean there are far too many for us to, to deal with right now. Um, well, we must stop in a minute, but here's another interesting little bit. The prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel dined with me. And I asked them how they dared so loudly to assert that God spoke to them, and whether they did not think at the time that they would be misunderstood and be the cause of imposition. Isaiah answered, I saw no God, nor heard any, in any finite organical perception. In other words, I didn't see God, you know, through my spectacles with my physical eyes. But my senses discovered the infinite in everything. And as I was then persuaded and remained confirmed that the voice of honest indignation is the voice of God, I cared not for consequences but wrote um, and, and Blake has in mind, of course, Isaiah's de denunciations of the state of society at the time he wrote. The, the inspiration is the voice of God, and he writes from that. Then I asked, it's a lovely little bit, does a firm persuasion that thing is so make it so? He replied, all poets believe that it does. And in ages of imagination, this firm persuasion removed mountains. But many are not capable of a firm persuasion of anything. So, you know, he's echoing the, you know, the biblical statement that faith can move mountains, but he's saying nowadays nobody's got enough faith to move anything, basically. The ancient tradition that the world will be consumed in fire at the end of 6,000 years is true, as I have heard from hell. You know that people did calculations and worked out that the world was created in 4004 BC, and therefore actually it should have happened quite simply that just after the year 2000 AD, the world was supposed to be consumed in fire according to the traditional calculation. Um, and he says, well, this is true because the cherub with his flaming sword, is hereby commanded to leave his God at the tree of life. And when he does, the whole creation will be consumed and appear infinite and holy, whereas it now appears finite and corrupt. This will come to pass by an improvement of sensual enjoyment. Sensual, I think you can say in modern terms, sensory 
not specifically sensual, but sensory by means of perceptions. Um, in other words, the, 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 the consumptional transformation, the burning up of the world, is not going to happen by somebody setting fire to it in the literal sense. It's going to happen by a transformation of human consciousness. Um, when our perceptions change, the world changes as well. That's the apocalypse. But first, the notion that man has a body distinct from his soul is to be expunged. This I shall do by printing in the infernal method by corrosives, which in hell are salutary and medicinal, melting apparent surfaces away and displaying the infinite, which was here. That's a joke. Blake, of course, as an engraver, is etching his plates with acid and saying that etching the unwanted bits of the copper plate away with the nitric acid is the same as satirically burning away the ideas that stand in the way of our seeing our true spiritual potential. And then he ends up with this wonderful aphorism, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. So if we can transform the way we perceive the world, the world will be different. That will be the true apocalypse, the true end, end of the world and the return to paradise. Um, it's virtually three o'clock. It's probably time to finish, I'll just click through the remaining plates. You can see how much material there is in here. We, we could spend a year discussing this quite easily. Um, I taught a, a six-week course on this last year. And by the end of week six, we'd only got halfway through. Um, you know, and we weren't doing all the discussion we could. We could have spent 12 weeks on this quite easily. monster, rather a nice one. Um, resurrection, man waking up. Nebuchadnezzar, when he went mad and ate grass. Um, that's a, an image that Blake did quite a number of different versions of. This is a little one. I mean, again, you see this book is, well, that's the actual size of it. It's like that. You've got it on. So it's small. So there's the mad king and the caption underneath says, one law for the lion and ox is oppression. In other words, it's no good treating everybody and everything in the same way. You have to, you have to be flexible enough to treat people according to their natures. You feed the, the lion on grass, it'll die. You feed the ox on meat, it'll die. They're different. You have to treat them differently. Is that it? That's it. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, I, I perhaps should apologize for confronting you with this rather unprepossessing image here. Um, this isn't actually um, a picture by Blake. Um, it, it is, in fact, um, probably drawn by Sir Christopher Wren, who um, you know, we all know, also engaged in rather larger enterprises such as St. Paul's Cathedral. But um, it's, it's an image of a flea um, seen 
through the first um, really effective microscope um, created by Robert Hooke. And Robert Hooke's book on the microscope illustrated from drawing by Ben through the early microscope. And apparently Charles II was, was extremely impressed by that. I sh I've shown you that simply because um, I wanted to use it to lead into the fact that in, in his later years, um, Blake became great friends of um, an astrologer um, John Varley. Um, and Varley, um, becoming very chummy with Blake, um, discovered that Blake could see, um, apparently see people who were, who were not there and visible to the naked eye. Um, and Blake produced, I think, kind of partly as a joke, a whole series of, of what are called visionary heads for Varley. In other words, he drew these people. Um, Varley would say to him, can, can, you see, can you see any historical figures tonight? And Blake would say, I think I can see King Edward VI over there. Um, and Varley would say, really? What does he look like? And, and Blake would proceed to draw a portrait of him and say, would you just mind, you're, you're standing slightly in front of him, just move over. Thank you, that's better. Oh yes, there he is. Um, and among other things, one of the drawings that Blake did for Varley um, was quite a famous drawing called The Ghost of a Flea. Um, and I think if you, if you look at the rather beady eye of this flea, um, I suspect that this played some part in Blake's conception of the ghost of a flea, which looks like this. Um, that's that's with, with very detailed drawing of the jaws, as you see. Um, and Blake said that the, the ghost of a flea, which appeared to him supposedly in Varley's parlour by candlelight one evening, was actually the ghost um, of, of a blood-sucking human being who had exploited other people and had been reborn as a flea, and that was him. Um, I'm not sure how seriously we take this, but anyway, that, that's the ghost of a flea. And Blake later, um, I'm not quite sure why, went to the trouble of making um, a full-scale tempera painting on a wooden board um, of the ghost of a flea, full length, which you can see in the Tate Gallery now. And there it is. That's, again, the colour's not terribly that is the gift of a flea. And you see he has a cup um, of the type which was used by um, physicians of the period for, for, for bleeding people. So the cup is to collect the blood which he's going to drink. Um, and the same, the same face as in the previous drawing. Um, that, that is currently on display in the Tate Gallery. If you go into the Tate, in, straight in front of you, you'll see signs pointing to the Turner room and the Blake Room. And if you follow the signs, you'll find that painting and a whole, a whole series of other Blake pictures. They change them from time to time, but it's worth going to. It's in Tate Britain. It's worth going um, to see. So I just thought in this session, really, it's a bit of a catch-all kind of session. I'm just going to show you a few pictures and things. Um, look at a couple of passages of poetry. Um, just, you know, to, to sort of in a few of the huge gaps that we've necessarily left. Um, Blake, Blake completed two long poems um, which he engraved and did. Um, one of them called Milton, um, in which he brings his predecessor poet back to earth to 
um, Lamedy, the various things he's done along during his life, and the other one called Jerusalem, which is about the sort of the attainment of the, of the ultimate heavenly Jerusalem. Um, here's the uh, title page to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion. Um, <coughs> unlike the, um, the, the earlier books we were looking at, the, the plates for this are roughly A4 size. And Blake engraved, printed, and colored 100 of these plates. So it's a 100-plate book. It's huge. Um, if you really want a challenge in terms of making sense of it, you should try reading that, because it's really something. Anyway, that's the title page of Jerusalem. And um, you can see that it has, um, it has female figures basically in the form of butterflies, um, but with sort of on the wings and, and things like that and various other flying forms above. And that kind of rainbow colouring, um, which again, I don't quite do justice to, is typical all the way through. Every page of Jerusalem is like this. It's beautifully, beautifully coloured, even if you can't understand a word of the text, which often one can't, frankly. It's worth looking at just for the visual beauty and the drawings. You know. <coughs> um, Milton the shorter poem, still long, but not as long as Jerusalem, which he wrote about his great predecessor. Here's the title page to that. Sorry, that's not Milton, that's the flea. Here's Milton. Um, that is, if you like, an idealized portrait of, of Milton as, as the sort of nude giant pushing into flame darkness. And the lovely calligraphy, mill along the top and tongue down the side. Um, when you look at these plates, just bear in mind that Blake had to, um, had to write every one of these, and, and the Songs of Innocence as well, backwards. They're all done by hand in mirror writing. It's, you know, extraordinary feat, although it was just part of the skill set of a typical 18th century engraver to be able to write backwards. I mean, how they learned this, I don't know, but they did. Anyway, so there's Milton, a poem in... It was in there. It's quite childlike. Blake seems to have done his title page before he wrote the poem. And so he did the title page saying Milton, a poem in 12 books. And then later on, he thought better of it. And he, um, he kind of partly obliterated the one, so that it read Milton, a poem in two books. <laughs> so <laughs> he decided the other 10 were too much of a challenge, I think. But it's, uh, it's a great design. It's, a, it's just such a pity it's so yellow. You know, I'm sorry about that. But anyway, um, this, this is a picture you've probably seen before. Uh, anyone know who this is? Newton. It's Newton. Yeah. Anyone been to the British Library? Yeah. Yeah. Eduardo Parlozzi sculpture adapted. Wonderful thing. I mean, the Parlozzi is, is wonderful. And to know that it has the Blake behind it is also wonderful. Um, it's, it's very interesting in all sorts of ways. I mean, for the start, of course, it has no particular physical, not much physical resemblance to Newton. It's an idealized figure. Um, and I don't suppose Newton did his calculations in the open air with no clothes on. But there it is. Um, the, the amazing texture of that rock, which seems to be covered with sort of seaside vegetation and stuff. It's, a, it's an amazing... There's a sort of anemone towards the bottom. Um, 
the whole rock is covered with that kind of, I don't know what it is, that kind of... Yeah, but it's like the stuff that you get, on, get at the seaside, though, isn't it? It's like, like marine weed of some sort. The, the, the scroll on which Milton is working has been deliberately made to look as if it's carved out of stone. It looks like a piece of marble, doesn't it? You see this down here. I don't know whether you can all see this, but that's not just linen or paper. It's, it's stone, isn't it? So in some curious way, Milton's, Milton, Newton's um, geometry is becoming sort of literally set in stone. Then you've got the, um, whatever the theorem is that he's working on with the diagram. Um, and the, the compasses or dividers, of course in, in those days dividers and compasses were the same thing because they didn't have a pencil stuck in them, you scraped a mark on the paper. So his compasses form a triangle perfectly on the paper, paper it is. Um, and of course, um, he's, he's looking downwards. It's as if he's, he's, he's so preoccupied with this thing that he's blinded to everything else around him. Um, Newton for Blake was a, was a figure who represented um, a preoccupation with the, the, the mechanical and the abstract, um, and the rejection of um, enjoyment of the richness of, of other aspects of the world. He probably didn't know that Newton was actually preoccupied with alchemy. You know, um, this was kept a closely guarded secret until the 20th century, so really, so he wouldn't have known that. Um, but also, uh, if I can click ahead briefly, uh, you see the compasses, the same motif of that. Um, the triangle being made with the compasses. Um, God and Newton are doing the same thing in these two prints. There we are, yeah. Um, this was one of a whole series of large prints which were made for um, a, a, a collector called Thomas Butts, who commissioned a lot of work from Blake in his later years. Um, I thought it might be nice to see this. Um, so yellow, shouldn't be as yellow as that, but anyway. This is Chaucer's Canterbury Pilgrims. Um, and this is on display in the Tate, and it's, it looks much better than this in the Tate. It's really good. Um, Blake had an interesting theory. There were 28 um, pilgrims in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And Blake had an interesting theory, which I th as far as I know, was original to him. He said, the 28 pilgrims are the 28 personality types of human beings which recur in all ages. He said you will always find these 28 kinds of people. So he saw it as a kind of system, interestingly. Um, and he, he, he has, you know, he goes into some detail about this. It's a very, very interesting idea. You wonder where, where this came from. Maybe, maybe it's just his own idea. The colours are much, coo are much cooler than that and much nicer, really, in the, in the original. But anyway, there we are. And, um, and here is the famous um, image, which is usually called the Ancient of Days. Although that, I, as far as we know, that wasn't particularly Blake's title for it. Somebody else gave it that title. Um, there are various versions of this. It occurs as the frontispiece to one of Blake's longer poems. Um, it also occurs 
as a separate drawing, the same image. He, he seems to have drawn it a number of times. And um, it exists as a number of just separate prints as a single sheet on its own. Um, I'm particularly fond of this because the, there is a one example of this is in the, um, the Whitworth Art Gallery in Manchester, and it is probably the very last thing that Blake did, because um, according to the biography, um, he was touching up the, the colouring or some detail on this print um, at the end of his life on his deathbed, and John Linnell, who was one of was present, and he said that, that Blake threw it from him, saying there it is done, um, I can do no more. And the one that's in the Whitworth Art Gallery was bought from Linnell by John Edward Taylor, who established the collection in the Whitworth Art Gallery, and therefore I suspect that this is actually the last work that Blake ever produced. And of course it's probably his most famous image. Um, it's sometimes called God Creating the Universe, um, it seems to um, it seems to illustrate a line Paradise Lost, where Milton describes God taking golden compasses and describing the circle within which the cosmos is to be created, and so that seems to fit so well. And of course, Blake knew Milton's poetry very well, so I presume that that is an illustration of that. Um, it's 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 interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm still cursing the yellowness. It shouldn't be that yellow. Um, it's the, co the combination of the great age of that figure and the extremely muscular build which makes it so interesting and unmistakable. I mean, it's, it's quintessentially Blake. As soon as you see that, you know it's Blake because of that physique combined with the white hair and the beard. There's also... Um, there's not only energy radiating from that sun, if that's what it is, um, but there's also the sense of a great wind blowing across because the hair and beard are being dragged sideways by a wind, aren't they? And then you've got those very ominous-looking clouds around. Is, is it clearing away or are they closing in? We don't know. Um, as very often in Blake's writings about God, you don't know whether it's supposed to be wonderful or supposed to be horrible. It's as if he, ca he can't make up his mind what he thinks of God. Does he love him or does he hate him? It, it, God is an enigma for him in a certain way, I think. Um, humanity, no problem. Ultimately, he loves humanity. Does he love God? I don't know. He sees God as this problem, I think. Anyway, there he is, you know, un unanswerable. That's, that's our world about to come into existence. Um... I'll go back to something slightly less daunting. Um, where shall we go? The Newton's quite nice, isn't it? And it's not too yellow. Let's have Newton. Um, I thought it might be good... This thing's coming and going, isn't it? It might be good to have a look at you know, just, just a couple of more fragments of his poetry, which I've given you on this vintage sheets. I've... I've, I've given you an extract from Orgulies of Innocence. Uh, and I've given you an extract from Milton. Um, in fact, I'll show you Milton again. Wait a minute, where's he gone? Because that comes out of this poem there. That's the title page. Um, 
I chose these two things um, was just to show you the incredible range of styles that Blake uses. Um, Orgulies of Innocence is almost childlike, and a lot of it reads like a collection of rhyming proverbs. But then you, you look across the page to the extract from Milton, and you've got this great sort of epic, visionary piece of writing with these long lines and this great vision of nature, which is far more ambitious and, and challenging. Um, let's look at Orgulies of Innocence first. I mean, everybody knows these first two lines, don't they? To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Well, uh, if you wanted four lines and about 30 words that summed up Blake, I mean, you, you would take those lines, wouldn't you? And, and people often do. Um, this was never published. It was just found, written in pencil, in a notebook that Blake had owned. Um, we don't know whether he meant to publish it or not. We don't know what it was for. It was just jotted in this notebook. Well, I mean, not jotted because handwriting was meticulously neat being a professional engraver. He just has beautiful handwriting. But there it is. It's an unfinished poem. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. A dove house filled with doves and pigeons shudders hell through all its regions. A dog starved at his master's gate for the ruin of the state. A horse misused upon the road calls to heaven for human blood. Each outcry of the hunted hare a fibre from the brain does tear. A skylark wounded in the wing, a cherubim does cease to sing. The gamecock clipped and armed for fight does the rising sun affright. Every wolf's and lion's howl blazes from hell a human soul. The wild deer wandering here and there keeps the human soul from care. The lamb misused breeds public strife and yet forgives the butcher's knife. The bat that flits at close of eve has left the brain that won't believe. The owl that calls upon the night speaks the unbeliever's fright. He shall hurt people then shall never be beloved by men. He who the ox to wrath has moved shall never be by woman loved. And it, and it goes on. There's, there's lots more. I mean, you know, I could have filled several pages. Um, well, some of it reads as a protest against cruelty to animals. Um, some of it's quite obscure. Every wolf's and lion's howl raises from hell a human soul. What do you make of that? I don't know, really. The wild deer wandering here and there keeps the human soul from care. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know what he means by that, but I can identify with that. The lamb misused breeds public strife and yet forgives the butcher's knife. Public strife. It's not... It's, it's difficult to feel that that's completely uh, sort of a, 
a vegetarian or vegan protest. Um, public strife, I mean, that suggests like riots or civil war, and yet, is it does, I don't know, is this a symbolic way of talking about innocence? Or, I don't know, some, with some of this, I feel almost it's as if Blake is doing kind of automatic writing, as if something is just coming into his head and he's writing it down, and the rhymes are leading him. And sometimes, he probably doesn't know what it but it's flowing out. And you get little, little bits of obvious satire. The bat that flits at clothes of Eve has left the brain that won't believe. It's just a satirical joke, isn't it? He who hurt the little wren shall never be beloved by men. Well, fair enough, yes. And of course, at this time, people still went hunting wrens on day. Um, this went on until very recently. Ren, Ren boys, anyone heard of Ren boys? I think in Ireland it still happened. Um, people would catch a Ren, put it in a cage, carry it round, um, sort of asking for pennies, a bit like a Guy Fawkes type thing. This was something that you did on Boxing Day. Strangely, a folk custom. You know? So maybe this was something that Blake had seen happen. I don't know. Um, but it's, it, it's just got this sort of natural, spontaneous feel to it. And I don't, I don't know that he had any particular plans for it. I think he, he was just sort of following where, where the rhymes led him, basically. And then you, you look at the other passage, which is an extract from Milton. I've chosen a passage. It's not totally typical of the whole poem. But there's a passage where he talks about nature, and you get all these different birds and beasts. And it's sort of magnificent, epic glorious nature. Thou hearest the nightingale begin the song of spring, the lark sitting upon his earthy bed just as the morn appears, listens silent. Then springing from the waving cornfield, he leads the choir of day, trill, 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 upon the wings of light into the great expanse, re-echoing against the lovely blue and shining heavenly shell. His little throat labours with inspiration. Every feather on throat and breast and wings vibrates with the effluence divine. All nature listens silent to him, and the awful sun stands still upon the mountain, looking on this little bird with eyes of soft humility and wonder, love and awe. Then, loud from their all the birds begin their song. The thrush, the linnet and the goldfinch, robin and the wren, awake the sun from his sweet reverie upon the mountain. The nightingale again essays his song, and through the day and through the night warbles luxuriant, every bird of song attending his loud harmony with admiration and love. This is a vision of the lamentation of Beulah over Olalon. And you suddenly, at the end of that passage, you suddenly run into a piece of Blake's personal mythology and you think, what's that about? Um, it does make some sense in the, context, the larger context of the poem. Um, the, the poem has a, a visionary, um, perhaps mystical cosmology about it, where Beulah um, is a, like an intermediate paradise, an earthly paradise, a heavenly space between 
the true heaven and our earth. I think it comes from um, the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, the, in the Pilgrim's Progress, the Pilgrim reaches Beulah, which is a place where you can rest. And Blake has Beulah as this sort of intermediate place. It, it's also, I think, based on Dante's earthly paradise in the Paradiso. Um, because Blake, as well as being soaked in Milton and Bunyan, Blake was soaked in Dante. And uh, you find huge um, debt, not always obvious, but, but when you see it, you realize, of course, he's taken this from Dante. He did about 100 watercolor illustrations to the Divine Comedy, which he was intending to engrave, but he didn't live long enough. But they, they, they are in existence. Um, but Bueller in, in, in the poem Milton Bueller also appears personified as a woman. And Olaf is, is, is like a kind of fallen version which has come into our world and been kind of embodied as nature. And, you know, it's, it's one of these impossible, sort of not, not entirely coherent cosmological schemes that Blake comes up with where you, you, you can sort of work out bits of it but other bits of it you can't, you can't get it all to fit together so I'm not going to get tangled up in that but, um, but the, 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 the description of the dawn is, is lovely and it's part of a big passage about nature basically um, which I think Blake wrote because he spent these three years at Shoreham it's now Shoreham by Sea in Sussex and I think he experienced a level of nature that he hadn't seen, you know, even in the much greener London of his time. And so he, he puts a lot of nature into this particular poem, I think because he was in Sussex. So he saw sort of We've got 15 minutes, and I just wonder if people have got questions that you'd like to ask or things you'd like to bring up because um, I think I've said enough really. You're probably all punch drunk with information, pictures and things. Do you want to do you want to ask any questions? Um, I mentioned to Kate that I, I, I had omitted unfortunately to give you a biography. I mean I should have given you a, a reading list to follow up with. Um, I can just mention a few things now. If you want if you want to read about Blake's life um, and you don't want to read a vast academic tome, probably the best thing to read is, <coughs> is The Life of William Blake by Mona Wilson. M-O-N-A, Mona Wilson. Um, and that will be easily available in paperback. If it's not currently available, if you go to any second-hand site, you'll be able to get a cheap copy very easily on the inter internet or through a bookseller. It's readily available. So The Life of William Blake by Mona Wilson. If you want um, to find out more about his mythology and symbolism and the more obscure stuff, um, the best place to start is um, the, the book, I think it's just called William Blake, by Kathleen Vrain. Vrain is R-A-I-N-E, Kathleen Vrain. William Blake. It's in that series of Thames and Hudson art paperbacks, you know. Um, if you want to go, and if you want to go further, if you want to go more deeply into Blake's symbolism and mythology and so on, um, then Kathleen Vane's book called Blake and Tradition 
is the place to go. Um, it's a large book in two volumes, but you can get it through, through a library. And it has the most beautiful reproductions of Blake's artwork. Highly recommended. Blake and Tradition by Kathleen Lane. Um, God. Uh, <laughs> this microphone takes when I bend my head down. It suddenly comes in so loudly. Uh, all of Blake's visual art, all of it, is available um, on a website called Blake Archive. Um, I think it's blakearchive.com, www.blakearchive.com, or just put Blake Archive on Google if you use a computer. Um, it's hosted by an American university, and basically what they've done is they've got scholars all over the world to assemble all of Blake's artwork, and, I'm, and I do mean all, like all of his illuminated books, um, all of his freestanding individual artworks, all of his commercial work, like book illustrations and advertisements, um, and they've got all the categories along the top, so you can just click on any one of them. Um, and not, not only have they got all his illuminated books, they've got all the different copies of his illuminated books because he coloured each one individually and so they're always slightly different. So you can compare, you know, you can compare three different copies of Songs of Innocence if you want and see how they vary. So, you know, you can have great fun with that, but they're, they're, they're beautiful. And I, I took many of the illustrations for today from the Blake Archive website. Um, they're not perfectly projected in here, but they are very good on a, an ordinary screen. Yes? Um, I've really enjoyed everything you've said. Um, thank you. I have a question. Yeah? Um, I didn't realize that Blake was baptized at St. James's Church. Um, oh, yeah. yes, that's right, yes, he was. Yes. I haven't actually, no. And photos with me. Oh, right. Um, but what, I mean, because I'm on my iPhone talk. Okay, yeah. What I'm thinking yeah. about, when I look at the baptismal, um, the, the... The font. Yeah, oh, sorry. The font. Yeah. Um, the figures are so much, it's as if Blake carved them himself. Um, Do you know when, what date the font was made? Is it later? Um, no, because it says he was... Oh, I understand what you're saying now. I'm wondering they, they whether... They say that that's the actual one that he was baptised in. Right. Um, well, in that case, it sounds as if they must have been like that when he was baptised. Um, I mean, it would be easy enough to find photographs of this on the internet, I imagine. Somebody else must have photographed it. But they said it was the original one. Um, so I'm curious to know if he was... First of all, he was baptised so that they... Um, I don't know the answer to this. Um, it's true that his parents sometimes um, were sometimes attending the Church of England Church, and so he, he could well have been baptised there. That's probably correct. Um, unless, of course, there's been a, a historical error at some point, and this is actually one of the other William Blakes, but I don't know, probably not. I don't know. I'd have to look into it. I haven't looked into this. I mean, I, I haven't recently gone into his biography um, because I've just been looking at his works, but that's, that's an interesting question. I can't, I can't comment on that, unfortunately. 
I don't, I don't, I just went to a talk there about Aldous Huxley, yeah, I happened yeah. to have in my bag right. Heaven and Hell, um, and was yeah. reading The Gates of Perception, yeah. the, the one sentence, yeah. and, um, and someone said, oh, he was baptised here, so, and there's yeah. a plaque, so I was amazed yeah. by it, and by the carving. Yeah. Um, you don't know who, who the carving is supposed to be by? I don't know No. Yeah, is 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 the is the is the font one complete integral piece, or is the carving on some sort of surround which isn't physically part of the on the model? Okay, well, in that case, it's got to be. I mean, if that information is correct, it must be earlier than Blake himself. Alternatively, the plaque may be inaccurate. We don't know, but. There must be information about this on the internet. I'm afraid you've caught me out on this completely. I can't comment. I, I wish I could. No, no, no. No, it's fine. I mean, I understand. I just wish I could say something useful. But <laughs> surprise me. I mean, as soon as I get home, I'm going to look it up and try and find out what's going on. But um, do, how, in what sense do they look like Blake's own artwork? Oh, okay. Yeah, things never never are there when you want them, are they? Um, never mind. Ah, okay. I see what you mean. Yeah, it's strange. So if he was back, it, it looks like he made it. So it looks it's his work. So I don't understand why it says he. I find it very hard to believe that that is pre-1757. It so, but it says that's exactly the baptismal... It looks Victorian to me. So do you think it was or, I wonder whether they... Whether, I wonder how integral it is. I wonder whether the inside of this has been... Oh, sorry. Whether that part exactly has actually been... Yeah. It, uh, I have to. Yeah, yeah. He's a sort of patron saint of the church, isn't he? Uh, I must say, what it says here is baptized in this church. It doesn't say baptized in this font. I think the font has been made later. I think the font is pre-Raphaelite. It's probably made by somebody in the 1880s or 90s after he'd started to come back into favour, as a guess. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because Blake, yeah, sorry, we got kind of a bit better in that, but one, I mean, one thing I haven't talked about, of course, is, is the rediscovery of Blake. Um, because when he died, he was pretty obscure. Um, he, his, um, his reputation was kept alive, partly by, by his little group of followers, and Calvert and Linnell, and then by um, Alexander Gilchrist, um, the biographer who, who knew Linnell and wrote a life of him. And he actually called the life of William Blake Pictor Ignotus, which means 
unknown painter, and that's what they used to put on pictures in galleries when they didn't know who painted them. So he was that obscure. So the first biography called him the unknown painter. Um, and then he was picked up by the poet Swinburne, Algernon Charles Swinburne. Swinburne was a bit of a naughty man, and he liked artists who kind of stirred things up and defied convention and had lots of naked people in their illustrations. So Swinburne wrote a book about him. And then, thanks to Swinburne, he was then discovered by the Pre-Raphaelites, um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, William Morris, those people. And they, they loved his designs, and they began to model their own book designs and that kind of thing on, on Blake's use of sinuous lines and all this kind of thing. And um, William, Dante Gabriel Rossetti's brother, William Michael Rossetti, bought um, one of Blake's notebooks at auction. It turned up at an auction as, you know, as some unknown thing, and William Michael Rossetti spotted this and bought it, and it's now known as the Rossetti Manuscript because he owned it. So Blake was then taken up by the Pre-Raphaelites, who began to publicize his work and began to imitate it and so on. And he became an influence, first of all, on the Pre-Raphaelites and then on Art Nouveau. You can see that if you look at the, the, the shapes, you know, um, that sinuous line and so on of Art Nouveau, that comes from Blake. Um, people began to, ever since Swinburne, people had begun to put his poems into anthologies and so on. And then in the 1890s, um, a sort of late disciple of the Free Raphaelites called um, Edwin Ellis um, got B. Yeats interested. And eventually Ellis and Yeats produced the first complete edition of Blake's works with the illustrations. What they actually had to copy the illustrations by, I mean, Ellis, who was a draftsman, copied the illustrations by hand. So they're not exact, they're not photographic, but they reproduced books just in black and white because they didn't have color printing adequate to the job at that time. Um, and Yeats, because he was interested in alchemy and all kinds of esoterics, began to work out the symbolism in Blake's poems and provided a commentary on them. So, so that Blake gradually came back into favor. He, and, and then people just started studying him, putting him in anthologies, academics started writing books about him, etc. and the rest is history, and here we are today. So he, he was nearly lost in sight, and then he was rediscovered. Um, and the pre-Raphaelites played a big part, so that's that. <laughs> Any, anything else? Um, Sorry, this is getting a boring question no, no. after this essay. Um, a lot of this uh, seems to me it's the way to the spiritual and all the way to true and the way to beauty and all the rest of it, you know. But when it comes down to this mystery itself, I'm sure you cover this because the mystery is perhaps energy, joy. But can we say any more... Um, but Blake thought about the end, if you like. Not death, but the ultimate. I think the answer to that is um, in, in sort of in the terms used by modern uh, students of these things. Blake was not a mystic, he was a visionary. Uh, he doesn't have anything much to say about the ultimate death. Um, 
it's very much concerned with the, the, the way there and the intermediate world. So I would say visionary, but not mystic, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, possibly in his personal mystic, but, but not really expressed in his work. But you still say he was a Christian of his own sort. Well, absolutely. I mean, he, I he certainly would have done. But he also says, the vision of Christ that thou dost see is my vision's greatest enemy. It's what, sorry? The vision of Christ yeah. that thou dost see is my vision's greatest enemy. Yes. Uh, because we Christ through our own in prism. Our own yeah. Right, yeah. okay, thank you. So I'm just going to say, Eckhart says many, many things about three Oh yes, there's a question here. I think. Oh, just did he ever get into trouble with the authorities? He did. Um, I didn't. I didn't have time to deal with this, but he was actually put on trial for treason, um, not as you might think for his writings, um, but because he ordered a soldier out of his garden when he was at Shoreham in Suffolk. Uh, the soldier, probably drunk. Um, reported him to the authorities. Um, they had a bit of an altercation. The soldier came in, this, the drunken soldier came into Blake's garden of the cottage where he was living in Sussex. And Blake told him to get out. And according to the soldier's testimony, which is probably exaggerated a bit, um, at some point in the argument, Blake said something like, damn the king and all his soldiers or something. And of course, the soldier probably said, well, I'm a soldier of the king, you can't tell me what to do. And Blake said, well, damn the king and all his soldiers, get out of my garden. But of course, once this is put down in black and white, it sounds subversive, you know. Um, and I mean, he, got, he was got off. By, by um, expert witnesses and friends and this and that. But he did have a nasty moment, yes. Um, and of course, it was a period when there was a lot of paranoia about treason. You know, people, lots of people were put on trial for treason and transported or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. But it was kind of, it wasn't, it wasn't in the way you might think. They weren't reading his books. It was a ridiculous incident, you know. But, uh, yeah, so that was the closest he came. Hello, we've got a question at the back. We have uh, time for one more, Bill. Is it true that a lot of Blake's work was censored? And at what stage did that take place? Um, because of its genitals? Yes. Um, John... John Linnell, John Linnell, who I think I'm, I'm hazy on this, but I think I'm right in saying this. John Linnell, who had been one of his uh, protégés as a young man, fell into the orbit of um, of a, a, a somewhat extreme and uh, another extreme and eccentric, a lot less benevolent than Blake. 
um, whose name slips me for the moment, I'm afraid I'm having a senior moment. What was he called now? He was a well-known preacher who became more and more dotty. And um, Linnell owned a number of Blake's works, and he cut, he, he, he cut out the genitals from some of the pictures with a pair of scissors um, because, because his religious views had convinced him that he ought to do this. Um, uh, Irving, that was the guy's name. He became an Irvingite. Um, and, and apparently the Irvingites became extremely puritanical. And Linnell, although he'd been a professional artist, kind of castrated these figures with a pair of scissors. Um, so yes, it did happen. We're, we're getting onto all the scandal now, aren't we? <laughs> Is it true that Blake was once surprised uh, sunbathing naked in his London garden with his wife? Um, possibly, yes. Um, somebody reported this. Um, and when they knocked on the garden gate to come in, um, Blake is said to have said, come in, it's only Adam and Eve. <laughs> but I'm, I don't know, I don't know they, we're, we're not sure how true that is, but um, there are, you know, he was the sort of person about whom stories circulated, so it may or may not be true, I don't know. No, um, the, there is there's, um, Sasha Dugdale's poem at the back about her, yes. Um, well, she, Catherine was um, Catherine was illiterate. She had had no education when he met her. Um, they married, and Blake taught her to read and write. Um, she uh, learned to operate his printing press, um, and she helped, as I said, I did say that she helped in colouring the prints. And after his death, she continued to colour and sell impressions of his prints. Um, uh, thereby giving, you know, scholars a lot of fun trying to work out what's what. Um, I'm sure, oh, well, there was again, there are lots of stories. Um, one of the stories um, is that sometimes to get him to spend less time on his visionary writings and more time actually um, doing some gainful employment. She, she used to put an empty plate in front of him at the table <laughs> to convey to Mr. Blake that it was time he buckled down to some paid work again. Um, she outlived him by quite a few years and, and, and his friends and admirers made, collected money to maintain her, basically. Um, there's no evidence of this at all. The, one of the many prolific rumours is that Mr. Blake might have suggested the idea that, um, that one could have a sort of group marriage, but I, I don't think there's any good evidence for this. Uh, because, as I say, he's the sort of person, you know, who attracted stories, and some very tall stories. He also met, uh, he met Coleridge once, and apparently the two of them were hotly engaged in conversation. But unfortunately, the guy who watched this n never wrote down anything that they said to each other. So we don't know what they said. Um, a guy called Henry Crabb Robinson, who kept a diary of literary society, he said that the two of them talked together like a pair of archangels or something. But he never tells us what they said. <laughs> it's really annoying. Yeah. 
Yes, the Blake Society, yes, yes. He, he fell out with his patron, of course, ultimately. He was taken down there by a guy called William Haley, who wanted to help him by giving him work. And of course, the inevitable happened, but gradually they squabbled, and Blake didn't like being told what to do, and, you know, and it all, it all fell apart. He went back to London, but, yeah, for, for years in Shoreham, yeah. It's probably time we all went home, isn't it? Thank you.